State your name and business for the record, please. Sure. Uh, my name is Dan Bach. I run Power9.com. Cool. Uh, how long have you been involved in Magic the Gathering as a player, and uh, how did you get into the game? Uh, I got into it through some friends in high school who were playing. Uh, they said it was really neat, and I should check it out, and I did. Uh, once I got to college, I began playing a bit more than I did in high school had more time to fool around with it and that's about when I started really getting into the trading aspect of it as well. Cool. Um, so were you a competitive player? I guess I was from the beginning. Uh, Madison is great. Uh, I'm sure you've heard a lot of things about it lately especially with all the pro players doing well and all the people on power9.com doing so well but it's always had a long and well-known tournament scene, especially for limited formats of high-level players. And I sort of got into that right at the beginning. I didn't really realize I was a competitive player until I was immersed into the Madison environment. Uh, and that's when I began playing tournaments and drafting with people and doing things like that. And what year was it that you started playing Magic? Uh, it was probably 94, 95. Right, right there at the beginning? Yeah, right at the beginning. So, so do you remember your first packs of cards? I do. The first rare I opened was a revised pack, and it was a Royal Assassin, which I thought was <laughs> really, really cool. And my friend, actually it wasn't a friend, it was a co-worker, uh, showed me this other card, Pestilence, which you could use to end the game. So I traded my Royal Assassin away for a Pestilence. <laughs> yeah, powerhouses of the mid-90s magic scene. Definitely. Right, so how, how far did you push it with your uh, involvement in the competitive scene? Uh, so Madison, so back in 94, 95 is a little tough because it wasn't as well structured as it is now. There weren't stores constantly doing events. Uh, it was really difficult to schedule events. So everything tended to be meetups and casual things, a bunch of people getting together at a coffee shop. Or in Madison, there was this youth center that everyone would meet up at once a week on Wednesday nights. Essentially, there's been a draft in Madison every Wednesday night for the last 18 to 20 years or so. And that started... Wow, that's uh, pretty cool. Yeah, that started downtown on State Street. It was called the Guild. It moved around a bunch, but eventually it resettled back at uh, Netherworld Games still downtown in Madison. I started playing there, but mostly I was, I guess, the formats weren't as well developed. There was type one and type two, but they weren't too, they weren't too far apart from each other, simply because there just weren't that many sets out then. And so there was a lot of crossover between people playing one and you know changing a few cards out and playing another. So it was pretty competitive and people would run tournaments at these things. We tended to get 20 to 50 people a week showing up to this. And this wasn't a store or anything. It was just a, a youth center that, you'd, that we'd go to. It cost a dollar to get in and that went towards renting it. Um, and then Arena, Arena League came out and I, and I got into that. That was pretty exciting. That was the one that had the, uh, those 1994, non, or 1994, 1996 non-foil lands and then the Arena Disenchant and Counterspell. That's where those were from. And I got into that real early on 
Uh, and from there, I started hearing about these things called PTQs. And so eventually I went to one of those and that was the, that was the first sanctioned event I had ever gone to. And uh, what was your experience like at, at your first sanctioned event? How did that differ from what you had been experiencing before? Uh, the Madison, the Madison scene really prepared me really well for it because people were not afraid to tell you when you were doing something wrong or to show you how to do something better. So the first event I went to, that PTQ, was a, uh, it was limited, I think it was Mirage sealed, possibly Mirage Visions. And uh, I won that thing. Nope, I didn't win that. I took second place, but it was a two-spot qualifier. So once we got to top eight and we got to the finals, uh, I just arm wrestled the guy for it, and he was gigantic. And so, uh, <laughs> so he took first and I took second, and we split the prizes. And so what pro tour did, did that qualify you for? That qualified me for New York 1997. Kind of a banner year in pro tour circuit? Yes. Uh, that was a great year. There were a lot of really great people there. I think there were about 200 people at that pro tour. Uh, that was one. That was, a, that was a very interesting event for me because it was technically my, my second sanctioned event ever, having won the, the PTQ as my first event. <laughs> a bit of a catapult forward yes uh and that was back when this is 20 years ago so my memory's not perfect but i'm pretty sure that the way they seated you for the first tables at these events back then was by dci rating so the top dci players one through eight were all at table one and then everyone and then nine through 16 was at table two and so on so Crazy. having so having only played in one sanctioned event, my DCI rating, I mean, your rating starts at 1600 and mine was like 1680 or something like that. Uh, so I was at the very, very, very last table. And I remember, I remember thinking that it was kind of weird that they set things up like that, but that was totally fine. And the format for that was fifth visions. <laughs> <laughs> kind of an odd format. Yes, which meant that your deck tended to be about 15 to 20 visions cards and usually three or four fifth edition cards right so fast forward a bit how many different pro tours did you end up attending before you showed up at pro tour tokyo uh so i've qualified for the pro tour four times the first time was there by winning the ptq then the second time i qualified for the pro tour was at that first pro tour uh, I took 23rd there, which qualified me for the next one. However, they scheduled the next one over Yom Kippur weekend, so I wasn't able to attend it. Then the next event I qualified for after that was... It was in Mercadian Block. I qualified for that one off of rating. That one was in L.A., uh, I, 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 that was sort of my right around my transition point where I, I really stopped playing competitively and started building up the business. So that was right when Mercadian was out, and I was really, I was really not ready for that format at all. Uh, I don't remember how many rounds I played, but I'm pretty sure I dropped somewhere in day one and just started trading and selling and and buying at the event itself. Got it. So so we get into 2001. You show up at Pro Tour Tokyo and 
coverage team ends up writing an article about you coming to the table with a deck full of nothing but basic lands. How did that go down? Uh, so what happened there was after that third pro tour that I just mentioned, I, I was really pretty much off playing competitively for money because I was just doing so much better trading at the events rather than actually playing at them. So a couple of years later, I was still buying, selling, and trading and vending at these events. Uh, however, there was one that was, it was the extended format, and it was being run by a tournament organizer who once a year would make his PTQs free. So I figured while I was at this event, I would play, I would play in it anyway because it was free. And so there were a ton of people there. It was a huge event. Uh, and I was playing... Uh, a slightly improved version of Full English Breakfast. So, so break down that deck for everybody. Oh, sure. Sorry. Um, that was the deck that ran Volrash, Shapeshifters, Survival of the Fittest, cards like that. The original deck was built with things like Tradewind Riders and other more controly things, and it really tried to do a lot of sort of just tricks with the deck. And I took the deck and I, I took out a lot of the control elements. It still had like forces of will in it and a couple counter spells, but it didn't really, it wasn't running four trade wins and other more controlling things. It ran Morphling. I don't think I was running Morphling anymore at that point. And my goal was really to sort of try and combo it as much as I possibly could. So there were impulses in mind and there were vampiric tutors in mind. And the, the goal is really to get a shapeshifter on the table, a Volrath shapeshifter, which is the turns into the top card of your graveyard as long as it's a creature. And the goal with the deck was to swing with a shapeshifter and then turn it into something gigantic, usually a Frixian Dreadnought. And if you also happen to have a Flowstone Hellion, you could activate its ability for free to give it uh, plus eight, minus eight. So you could swing with a, a 20-powered Volrath shapeshifter on turn three or four if you were if you were lucky. <laughs> That's pretty sweet. So so you, you were playing a pretty real, uh, technically uh, uh, demanding constructed deck heading into that Pro Tour. Uh, and then what happened? So then the format for the Pro Tour was Invasion Block Constructed, I think. And at that point, it was only Invasion Plane Shift. So it wasn't really, it wasn't really a great format. That, that format definitely needed Apocalypse in it. Uh, the decks didn't seem too much fun. So b before I had uh, I qualified with the Shapeshifter deck, I was actually already planning to go to the Pro Tour just to buy, sell, and trade because it was in Japan and it was going to be cool. And my employer at the time, Bob Maher, uh, was paying for me to go out there. So when I entered the free PTQ, I thought it would be cool if I qualified anyway because I would get the shirt. And I'd have, you know, my fourth Pro Tour, or my third, I guess, Pro Tour shirt, since I couldn't go to my second one. So I was planning to go to the Pro Tour anyway, and then I sort of qualified for it by accident with the Shapeshifter deck. And I was never really planning to play when I got there. The format didn't really excite me, and I was, I was just planning on buying, selling, and trading at the event. However, once I got there, and I said I'm qualified, uh but I'm not going to play, can I get my shirt? And they told me, no, you need to play at least one round, otherwise you don't get the shirt. <laughs> <laughs> and so, 
uh, I was I, I was at the point where I was gonna just throw some random deck together or buy some invasion packs from someone and and, and register that as a deck and, and then it just hit me that I should just play all lands because I had plenty of them sitting around. Uh, the arena lands actually that I mentioned earlier from the arena league those were really popular in Japan at the time because they didn't have any access to them. So we had just brought stacks of them to do business with. And so I just grabbed 60 of those and made it into a deck. <laughs> right. So you're, you're sitting across from Matthias Jorstad from Sweden. And right. I think he's got Noah Boken beside him, beside him as well. And these guys start trash talking, trying to figure out what your deck is. And you're just flipping over lands, mulliganing hands, and you know folding in the first 10 minutes with nary a spell card played. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> so that so then you went about your your actual business, which was uh, taking part in some of the earliest cross border arbitrage in the industry. Yes. Cool. So let's so let's roll forward a, uh, or roll sideways, I guess, a little bit. Um, you know, that's and then from there on, you're not you're not playing in any other pro tours. You've withdrawn from high level competitive events from there forward. Yeah, I never really seriously tried to go for it again. I was. It's one of those things where when you're in the industry in one aspect, it's not something that you want to do recreationally anymore. Uh, right. So, you know, you said that you had kind of segued into business very early in your Magic career. Um, you know, by the by the midnight late '90s, you're already binder grinder, uh, extraordinaire, showing up at every tournament within reach. Uh, trading left, right, and center. Is that the deal? Yeah, that's essentially the evolution of it. So describe for people what it was like to be trading magic cards before everybody had a smartphone and could look up prices left left and right. It was... I mean, looking back, it sure feels like the Stone Age. You didn't have... I mean, even, even 10 years ago, you still didn't really have smartphones, so not everyone had access to the Internet. Um, but in the late 90s... I mean, the internet barely existed. Some of my friends were trading on it, but I never really got into that until the early 2000s. It, it, it just never seemed safe, and there was no there was no real organization to it, so it was really hard to meet people. I think they were just trading on IRC and things like that. So binder grinding at the events was was pretty different because you really had to know what everything was actually worth, and the only way you could get pricing if you weren't really familiar with things was by using the magazines and there was inquest and scry and they were both they were both kind of terrible for their own reasons in general they pulled vendors for their prices and then they just they they would print an average of that and uh of course similar to the comic industry or the baseball card industry the vendors were really were really they really had a sort of an oligopoly for the lack of a better word on all of the cards in that they were holding a majority of them and they could buy and sell them at whatever they wanted to and you had no way of really shopping around and comparing information so if you didn't know what things were actually worth you were stuck using the price guides and the price guides tended to to really overemphasize some cards over others so one of the biggest advantages of, of binder trading back then was understanding what was just wrong in the price guides and sort of using that. 
Sure. So can you describe an example of what that might include? It has been a long time. I'm trying to think of a good example that would make sense. Uh, the, the nearest thing that I can think of that it compares to is sort of the difference between the way a casual player is going to evaluate cards compared to a competitive player. A casual player is going to see things a lot more flat in terms of pricing. They're going to think that most rares are worth at least a buck fifty or two dollars because packs cost four dollars or three dollars if you get really lucky and find them on sale somewhere. So they're going to put most rares at a dollar fifty to two dollars each, and then they're not going to expect any rares to go over ten dollars. Whereas a competitive player is going to look at things and value these just terrible rares at ten cents or twenty five cents, but the very best rares are going to be fifteen to twenty dollars. Uh, and in some ways, the price guides were like that. Sometimes they would really emphasize the casual side of it. Like the Shivan Dragons would be worth a bunch, but at other points, the competitive cards would be worth a lot. Like the Wrath of Gods would be worth a lot, or the Birds of Paradise would be worth a lot. Yeah, so I guess we're talking about an era where you know they, they would feature Nightmare in the middle of a page and talk about how dangerous it was as a as a finisher or something. And meanwhile kids are trading away their tundras to get nightmares exactly yeah i I didn't even think of the dual lands but they're a perfect example yeah casual players not necessarily going to understand exactly how much of an advantage having four tundras in your deck gives you and i mean look at nightmare now wizards wizards gives nightmare away free in the uh in the starter decks that they have exactly uh but yeah nightmare is a great example that's a card that a casual player would just love whereas a competitive player would just absolutely not even want four copies of just in case they would want zero of them yeah and it's an interesting point point you reference that you know pre ebay pre tcg player pre facebook sales groups and and social media um you know no twitter etc there there really was no outlet to buy and sell cards from another player unless you were meeting them at the shop um in your local gaming community or you were at a major tournament right Exactly. I mean, people people think that there's a problem with hoarders now, but it, it doesn't compare to the way that vendors had a had a huge advantage over over everyone else in the in the late '90s before the internet. It, information just really empowers more people in that way. So that's what the, that's what the internet really changed. And if you look at the way the other two industries we we mentioned the the baseball card industry and the comic book industry. In the late '90s and early 2000s, when people when people realized that they didn't have to do all transactions through vendors, that they could do it sort of peer to peer, it really it just crashed all the markets because the only reason those markets had value was that the vendors were holding the cards, but also holding the information and setting all of the prices. And a big reason that Magic survived that is that while comics and baseball cards are 90% to 100% collectors uh there's only really five maybe five to ten percent collectors in magic especially back then it's it's really held by the players themselves and the players get utility out of the cards outside of a collecting aspect to it so because of that once it was realized in comics and baseball cards for example sports cards in general that the cards were were a lot more plentiful than people thought and they could trade within each other and buy and sell to each other, it, it collapsed the market, whereas the cards themselves still had value. So if, if you had a $10 card 
and all of a sudden you find out that it's worth $3 and not the $10 that the vendor sold it to you at, you're probably not going to sell it at a dollar. You're just going to keep it because it's only $3. So there was no, there's no big rush in response to the addition of information for people to sell out. So because they can still play with them, people held on to them. And holding on to them as dispersed as all the players were and not feeling the need to sell them really kept the markets from crashing, even after Chronicles and Fallen Empires came out. Yeah, I mean, I, I would argue that the, um, you know, I talk about all the time about attrition as a concept in MTG Finance and about how um, the the fact that the the majority percentage of any set, no matter how overprinted it might be, um, eventually ends up either in storage, sealed, or uh, popped, opened, and then stored away under beds and in closets. And given enough time, the market will drain out uh, to the point where you still will eventually get down to a relatively low inventory level versus the print run, um, just based on that attrition principle. Right, and and as that's happening, it has the market balancing effect of making it more likely that people dig their stuff up and, and add it to the marketplace. Sure. So, you know, back on the floor in like 1997, 98, you're not buying cards for cash, right? Like that rule is already established that you can't. Do yeah, that. yeah, that was that was very well established. Um, so, so, that, so this is this is lugging around a giant backpack full of binders and and trading willy nilly just based on your memory. Yes, uh, the one the one caveat or the one the one slight difference to that is that back then, at these big events, wizards would only let a couple different vendors be there. So, for example, Troll and Toad was always there, and there were a few others who I don't even think are in business anymore, who tended to be at these events. And so what people like myself would do is we would, the first thing we would do when the hall opened is we would go to all the vendors and we would ask them for a copy of their buy list or we'd ask to see their buy list and we would look at everything that we thought we could pick up much cheaper than that. So the general, the general way to be back then was figure out what was wrong or what seemed wrong on the buy lists and really target going after all of those cards. And to a certain extent, it's still like that. Uh, there's just a lot more information out there. And it's, it's, it feels like there's a lot less trading at events than there used to be. At most events, I'm, I'm behind a booth at this point, so I don't really see it as much. I don't know if you have any, any information on that. It's something that a few other vendors and I have been talking about for a while. Is that something you've noticed? I mean, I think it, it, it has become taboo to speak of at this point. But the reality of binder grinding in the in the mid late '90s was that it was largely about trying to get advantage. The you know you're trying to trade uh, your nightmares away for tundras, and whatever um, value difference that is on the table um, is kind of the the name of the game. Like pretty much every trade, you were trying to get a leg up, right? Yeah, absolutely. I I don't think it's taboo or a secret at all. Well, I mean, I think it. I, th I think it's it. It's why we hardly see trading anymore because the with you know the uh, ubiquitousness of smartphones and access to price comparisons, everybody knows they're going to be trading at pretty much you know dollar for dollar value. I'm going to give you twenty dollars in cards, and you're going to give me twenty dollars. And for a lot of people, that's just not exciting. Yeah, definitely. Uh, that that has certainly helped. That has sort of. That's definitely helped people realize the full value of their cards and 
I, I do think that is one of the contributing factors to why you see fewer people trading at events is that everyone has the expectation that they that they want to come out ahead so it's much harder for them to do so because of the addition of all the for lack of a better word free information that you have now i mean i think we can both agree there were sharks aplenty floating around most major tournament scenes oh Um, definitely and uh, another thing with the pro tour especially is that it used to be a much more open event the pro tour was going on and that would be a 200 to 400 person event but there would still be another 500 or a thousand people hanging out playing inside events watching the events trading on the floor and stuff uh, and the pro tours themselves are are much more closed off now for lack of a better word uh, but certainly the grand prix series has replaced that in terms of accessibility and so Comparing Pro Tours back then to Pro Tours now is not exactly great, but comparing Pro Tours back then to Grand Prix now is definitely reasonable in terms of the trading scene. Right. So you're binder grindering, and then you alluded to you were you were working for Bob Maher, Pro Tour Hall of Famer, um, yep. at one point. Can you tell us a little bit about that and uh, how that transitions into the establishment of Power Nine and his business? So Bob was always one of the huge powerhouses in the Madison magic scene. He's originally from Chicago, uh, but he moved up here for college, as many of us did. And there's tons of other great Madison players that I'm sure you've heard of. Adrian Sullivan and uh, Seth Byrne were all back here back then. Sam Black was first cutting his teeth back then. Uh, so the tournament scene was, was great here. There were a bunch of great stores in Madison who had a lot of open play and trade. And uh, Bob had this huge collection, and he was in college. However, he really wanted to get into the industry from, from a vending standpoint. So he used a huge company that he had. Uh, not a huge company. He used a huge collection that he had to start a company. And once he started it, he brought uh, Mark Justice into it, and he talked to me about working for him as well, which I I thought was a great opportunity. So I began doing that. He noticed me, you know, trading and buying and to a certain extent playing and frequently losing to him at these events. And so he brought me into the company that way. And that was a great experience. Uh, I got to go to a lot of events that I would not have otherwise been able to go to. Uh, We frequently went to the Japan events, the pro tours that they held out there. He was usually playing in them, and I was usually vending or trading at them in some context. And that's when I sort of began to realize a lot of different things about the, about the way vendors were set up, about how different places were very different in terms of what the cards were valued at. Uh, you mentioned arbitrage earlier, and that was, that was a huge thing that a lot of companies back then were able to take advantage of. When I mentioned going to the vendors and checking out their buy lists, they would have these cards that just didn't make sense at all that they were paying so much on it. Uh, there was a card, Delrake is a great example. It was a rare in Mercadian block that was just functionally not a very good card, and it wasn't ever used in any events, but the dealers were always sort of bafflingly buying it at 2 3 or even $4, and you could, you could trade for them at a quarter or whatever. And it, it wasn't until much later, once I started going to more of these international events, that it was because that card, especially because of the picture, was valued really highly, in different countries and it was just a it was just one of those things where people really love that card for a reason that 
wasn't immediately obvious. So the vendors were buying it from us at from the floor traders at two or three dollars, which we thought was incredibly high. And then they were selling it at eight to ten dollars, which was unimaginable to us. And that's one of those things that having sort of a more free market really uh, stabilizes and evens out is that it, once you get on TCG player or you start selling on eBay, you might list your first set of a card like that at, you know, four for eight dollars and it'll sell in minutes. Not anymore, but back then it would have. And uh, you say, oh, well, the next one I've got to price higher. And eventually you figure out that there's something else going on here and that you there's a much bigger world out there than just the local tournament scene you've been exposed to. Right. So pre-internet and early internet intuition and uh, kind of the accumulated tribal knowledge of your your uh, company team is really the driving force behind whatever success you managed to muster. Right. And just being exposed to more things and more tournaments and more people really helps broaden your knowledge. And working for Bob was great for that because I met tons of people I would have never met. I, I went to a, a bunch of different places. We went to Belgium, went to the Worlds that was there. So I got to meet a lot of really great people and learn a lot about different magic markets through that. And so how long did that go on for? My recollection is a little bit fuzzy about that, but it was probably three or four years that it was going on. Uh, one of the things Bob and I have in common was that we were both sort of doing this while we were also going, while we were also attending UW-Madison. And <laughs> it's it certainly, the, the, the two things certainly interfered with each other. Uh, it was very difficult to be a full-time vendor and still focus on my studies and for him <laughs> being a vendor and also dominating the pro tour back then and also studying was a bit of a was a bit of a stretch there's just not enough time to do all, all of those things at the levels that he and I both wanted to do them at do you recall back then whether you whether you thought that was your future did you have other plans it was one of those things where every year or two I would say to myself this is great and I love doing this but I don't really expect this to last more than a couple of years. So I really should be doing something else that I can do after this kind of dies down. And so every couple of years, I would kind of reevaluate it and look at it and say, should I still be doing this? And so it, yeah, it, it did surprise me that it held on as long as it did and that it's continued to do well. Uh, certainly back then, there were a, a whole bunch of of pitfalls, uh, some of which they managed to avoid and some of which they did not manage to avoid. Uh, but there was nothing ever really lethal that actually killed the game. And that's sort of one of the things I always feared, of course, uh, because I really enjoyed doing it, but also because, you know, we have inventory. And so back then I always thought, you know, I was, I was going to be a computer programmer, I was going to go into IT. Uh, but as I progressed through my studies, and as I found myself enjoying it less and less, uh, I really started focusing on magic and, and thinking that I could turn it into a, an actual real person business. So once I, once I finally graduated, and I used the word finally with no real sense of exaggeration there, that, that took me a long time. <laughs> took a few extra years? A, a little bit, a little bit. Um, I said, you know, I'm going to... I've got this degree, but I don't, I don't really enjoy it as much as I, as I thought I would when I started off. So I'm going to give this magic thing a try 
for say a year and see how I do with that. And I didn't, I didn't have a store. I didn't have a, like a vending outlet at all. I wasn't setting up at tournaments yet. I was just, I was just grinding and, uh, and trading and selling. And that's about when I began selling on eBay as well as another sales outlet. So, so what year is this? That would be 2001. Got it. So the same the same year you went to Tokyo. Yes, that was the. Well, You've graduated, de- de- degree in your back pocket, and you're striking out on your own. Yes, uh, that was yeah. The, the 99 to 2001 was right around when I began saying to myself, "I am, I, I I'm a, I'm a pretty good player, but it just requires so much time to stay good." And, and people who don't think it takes time are just. It takes a lot of time to stay as good as, as you need to be to, to, to keep qualifying for the Pro Tour and, and doing well at it. And I just did not have the time. And I really enjoyed the trading and buying and selling aspect of it a lot more. And that's 99 to 2001 was right around the transition. So it's 2001, you're out <laughs> on your own, and? I'm, I'm trying to think of how to describe things back then. It was, I mean, it was just so much, it was so much looser, it was so much less strict it was really it was really the wild west times for magic um especially in terms of of vending so it 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 was one of those things where every step to me seemed natural and organic but looking back on things and looking at the whole picture it might seem extraordinary or unusual or impressive, I guess. Um, but you know, I would be out there. I'd be, I'd be floor trading. I'd, I'd be, I'd be buying and selling and trading. Uh, and there was really sort of a huge vacuum in the local scene for what people were doing with singles. Uh, PTQs were starting to really ramp up in terms of popularity and frequency. And there were a couple people who were doing them and they would be vending at them and anytime I would interact with 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 many of them I would think to myself and I had this feeling about about the stores in general that I would visit not just in Madison but everywhere anytime I would go to a store and I would I would see what they were doing or anytime I would interact with a vendor I would I would say to myself I I feel like I can do this better than 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 he's doing it and Eventually, that just turned into, I, I can't remember exactly what my first, I, I can't even remember my first event vending, if that gives you a sense of, of how loose it was, because I'm pretty sure the first event I vended at, I was also playing in the event, because, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's just what you did. I would, I would be there, I'd try to, try to finish my round as quickly as I could and run back to the booth, and uh, I, I can't remember... So back then, the big tournament organizer and one of the one of the greatest tournament organizers the world has ever seen, Steve Port, based out of Wisconsin and later based out of Minnesota, Steve Port of Legion Events and Legion Supplies, he was running the PTQs in Madison, and he ran that first one that I qualified for years and years ago. He didn't know about the uh, about the arm wrestling thing though. By the way, that was that was that was strictly between me and the giant Swedish guy who crushed my palm against the table that was just me and him <laughs> um I, to give if you if you've never met me i'm about about five four five five hundred twenty five pounds so 
Yeah, this guy was huge. But um, Steve Port was running that event, and he continued to run the events in Wisconsin and in the Midwest and did an amazing job doing it. And I can't remember if I asked him if I could vent at his events or if he eventually saw me floor trading and, and dealing with the vendors and asked if I wanted to start vending. But that's what I did. I, I started vending at these small PTQs and other events like that. And uh, Steve was great. He really, he really helped me out in the early years by uh, giving me access and being able to vend at events of his. He began expanding into Minnesota and other places. And so I just tried, began trying to get to as many of these events as I could. Uh, the really huge thing back then are, were pre-releases. The uh, pre-releases were, were bigger than Pro Tours. They were bigger than Grand Prix back then. They were the, the biggest event and the best place for for really binder grinding and, and being a shark and just being trading and just being a trader. And, and the real reason for that was that just like they do now, the pre-releases really bring out the casual players who tend to not go to events. And back then there would only be maybe eight to, I don't know what the number is, but it was, it was certainly less than 20, eight to 20 pre-releases in the entire country. They were totally regional and we lived in Wisconsin and unfortunately, that meant that the nearest pre-release was either in Illinois, in Chicago, or in Minneapolis. And it was a it was it was a huge deal because you'd have to you'd have to travel and get a hotel or crash on a friend's floor. And they would they would just be gigantic. They would be these three hundred, four hundred person things. And they were, they were really great. They really brought out a whole bunch of different people. The competitive players loved them because the prize payout was great. The casual players loved them because they got to play with the cards beforehand and they got to participate in a, in a big event without it really feeling competitive to them. Uh, Wizards switched that over to making it so that every, every store can run a pre-release. And, and I actually... <laughs> there are a few people that that hurt more than random vendors. That certainly hurt us a lot. Um, but I do really think that them making that switch was a great move, uh, even though it, it really financially hurt us a lot. Because Cause it, was, it, was, it was turning off the faucet for, for the, the best trading time. Right. I mean, it, it changed it from me being able to go to the Minneapolis pre-release and send a bunch of employees to the Chicago pre-release and having access to 200 to 600 different players over the weekend to going to a store where there's only going to be 30 people or 80 people or 15 people on, on a bad set. And that really, that really changed it for the vendors. But it was a great move for Wizards because it made it so that if you lived in Appleton, Wisconsin, you didn't have to drive eight hours just to get to a pre-release. You now have to drive 10 minutes. You don't have to get a hotel room. And it really opened up the pre-release to a lot more people and I don't know what the numbers are but there but there's way more people that play in pre-releases now than did back then even though the events themselves are are a lot smaller uh, but I but I, I do kind of miss those pre-releases partly because you know it was a huge it was a huge opportunity to do a lot of business at them but also because you got to see all of these people that you tended to only see once every one to three months in a, in a really fun, casual context. Sure, sure. So then how does all of this parlay into you setting up shop officially? 
Uh, so that, that I mean, the pre-releases and the local PTQs were the big, were the big trans, the big changeover point for me. I would go to these things and I would do more buying and selling at them that I would do in the weeks or months in between them, and it uh, it was sort of a, a heads up that instead of trying to sort of grind it out at small events, I should be trying to attend as many of the larger events as I can and sort of maximize all my time there in terms of buying, selling, and trading. And once you got to the point where you were just picking up a whole bunch more, once you, once you have the, the purchasing and acquiring streams in play, you need to, you need to set up another, you need to set up an equal stream for selling things. And that's, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that, that was my question was how you were getting, you know, I understand the binding binder grindering. I, I, I'm unclear how you were getting to cash back then. Were you like leveraging buy lists before you had a, a, a storefront? Yes, I was definitely leveraging buy lists and I was shipping off to people. Uh, and I was, and I was hunting down, trying to find where people were selling or where, what, which dealers were which dealers were paying the most on things. And it was really, it was really tough. I mean, some of this, the 1997, 98, 99 stuff was really before Google was even a thing. And, and so it was, it was, it was actually kind of difficult to find people who had buy lists and you frequently had to call them and make sure it was updated and all the prices were right. Uh, and eventually I remember there was one card in particular, Rancor, that there was this one vendor who was paying. It just seemed like a, and it was a, it was a, random store in indiana that was paying what seemed like way too much on that card they were paying like two dollars on it and it was a imprint common and that was that was one of the points that made me try and figure out what they were doing with all of the cards that they were that they were selling and that was around the time that i began partnering with already established stores with this system that we have at power nine for uh taking over the inventory of stores and that was that was one of the two outlets that did really well for me the other one being of course ebay and the way that system works is we would front the stores with four of every card and then we would front the stores with four of every card and uh, as they sold them we would restock them with whatever they sold so that gave me an outlet into sort of the direct retail thing. And it was done on a consignment basis. We would each get a percentage of the sales. And I would always keep them in stock with everything, which was a huge advantage because each store that we partnered with was able to say, we always have every card. Just come on in and buy it. Uh, and when we first started doing that, it was, of course, all like pencil and paper. And it was just an absolute mess. But we've, we've got a lot more sophisticated systems in play now. So we're able to sell things and maintain the store's inventories much, much better and have a lot better control over prices and being able to react to market fluctuations, fluctuations, stuff going up and down a lot so that we can always be, we can always have appropriate prices for all of the players. Right. So are you talking about you were selling through uh, at other people's retail outlets, um, stocking and restocking? mixed-use collectible stores like comic book shops, sports card vendors, so forth? Yeah, uh, and, and we still do that today. We still offer that service to, to stores today where if you have a store and you're getting into magic and you're finding yourself 
in a situation where your players are, are wanting to buy cards from you, but you either don't have them or you're not sure what to price them at. And you, you really want to service your players, but you don't want to have to have the knowledge or expertise or to hire someone to do it. Uh, that's a situation where the stores that we work with and our company are able to leverage each other's knowledge and uh, setup where we have the knowledge and we have the inventory and they have the access to the players who want to buy the cards and they want to play with them right away and they want to look at the card before they can buy it. So we still do that to, today. We still have a ton of stores that we work with. And so do they, are, are they paying their wholesale costs on those cards up front or are they just, you're taking your, you're recovering your costs plus your share of the profit at the till? It's the it's closer to the second one. It's a it's a consignment thing. So we drop right. four four of every card in the store, and that doesn't cost them anything. How many stores are you doing that with? Let's just say a lot, <laughs> like dozens or hundreds all over the all over the country. <laughs> uh, I mean, we're, we're we're constantly reaching out to new stores. <sighs> it's <laughs> I can't really give you a good number on that. I'm sorry. It's it's a big chunk of your business, is what we're saying. Yeah, it is, and, it, and it's great for presence, and it's also great for uh, purchasing. The stores do purchasing for us, and that's one of the things that they really, really love uh, because players are not, always, not, not, not just always wanting to buy cards, but they're always wanting to sell cards. And if you're managing your inventory by yourself, uh, there, there is an upper limit on how much you can purchase. Uh, but with us backing them, there's never any limit to how much they can purchase. So if we have some random card on our buy list... Uh, at 10 cents or 25 cents and someone comes in and with, with 200 of them a normal store is going to say okay we'll, we'll, we'll take eight uh, but with us backing them they never need to say no to anyone and that's a great thing for uh, for servicing your customers and for keeping your player base really happy if you as a as a business never have to say no to people it really it really encourages them to do business with you in the future Right. And the idea here is that a lot of these retailers don't have the capital, the interest, the knowledge of the staff to be, you know, cracking case after case and trying to sort, collate price and, and manage the, that inventory, right? Right. And they're, they're leveraging our knowledge and our access to the markets to, to, to help themselves and their customers out. And that's, that's the, the first thing I say to stores when we consider them for this program is very simply that if you use our program you will make less money than you did beforehand however your costs are going to go way way down as well you don't ever need to worry about training people you don't ever need to worry about selling the wrong thing you don't need to worry about purchasing the wrong card at the wrong price because all of our information is as near to perfect as we can get it and we're always going to be backing you. So when a card spikes and goes from being a $3 card to being a $10 card, if it's still $3 in our system and your customer buys it from you, you don't have the feel bad that you do if you actually own the card. And it's, it's, it's on us to, to make sure that we're, we're raising our prices when something spikes and lowering our prices as cards naturally fall or when cards get banned and they're still on a store's buy list for five dollars and all of a sudden it's a three dollar card people go to the local stores and they unload them hoping that the store hasn't heard about it yet and that's one of the things that we that's one of the risks that we take away with the system and people 
people really love it. And what happens is they find that in the first few weeks of our system, they're sort of netting less money than they did before, but they're no longer putting in any, any effort into it. And we have our system set up on the POS side so that even someone who has no idea how magic works can still buy and sell the cards because we have identifiers and ways of, of, of making it obvious what's going on for people. So you don't need to have a magic specialist at your store anymore. Right. So this is, this is proprietary software that, that you're making available yeah. direct to your partners. Exactly. And, and in, in the first couple of weeks, they are, they, are, they are netting less money. But as, it, as, the, as time goes on and as their local environment responds to them having all the cards and being able to buy all the cards, uh, they eventually end up grossing a lot more money and putting a lot more a lot less overhead into it simply because they don't need the expertise anymore they can we assume the risk of having that expertise in terms of the spikes and the yeah i mean it's probably a good time to probably a good time to point out to our listeners that have never been involved in retail that really the thing that can sink the ship most easily isn't how much money you're bringing in it's poor management of your expense profile yeah, that is that is certainly one of the big pitfalls in our industry, especially because the people who tend to set up in our industry tend to not be business background people. They tend to be gaming background people. And in our industry specifically, I, I think they do have an advantage over other things like someone who enjoys cooking, opening a restaurant or someone who enjoys uh, embroidery or making dresses, opening a a retail dress shop. I, I think our people are going to have, our gamers are going to have an advantage over them in that when they notice things going bad, they're going to be able to respond to it in a more intelligent way because business is really just a, a subset of gaming and you're reacting to everything that's going on around you. And that gaming background is great, but it's still not, it's still not perfect for a, for a business thing. And a lot of, a lot of companies go out of business because they don't understand that you can't just run it the way you want to. There are many things that you have to do to take care of the business side. And that's, that's the big difference between having an actual retail shop and just sort of doing it on the side, for, just in terms of are, are they a store that we want to work with? Are they a store that we think can maintain uh, an appropriate amount of purchasing and sales and so on? There's a bunch of checks that we run on people to make sure that okay. they're suitable for the program and that we're we're happy with it. Cool. Uh, and is that something you're only running inside the U.S., or do you also have partners overseas? That is only in the U.S., yes. Got it. Um, okay, so let's hit the rewind button. So as you're, kick, as you're, as you're kickstarting this, um, you know, in the early 2000s, and you start to work with stores, how long uh, is Power9 now an incorporated entity at that point? Yes, uh, I think they incorporated, or I think we incorporated uh, early two thousands is when we. Okay, and you have you have partners in the no. business. I'm the only owner. So you're, you're the man. Yes. So the you get that rolling, but you don't have a storefront at that at that point. You're working with other stores. Correct. I don't have a storefront. I should I should back up real quick. I I just got married in August, so. My wife is, of course, a co-owner of, of Power9 as well, and Alex is. <laughs> just in case she listens. Oh, I'm hoping she'll make, listen. Make sure that's on record. <laughs> no, it's, it's, not, it's not just that. <laughs> she is uh, 
she she is amazing uh i i met her through the industry and uh this this business would not be would not have done as well in the last few years as it had had it not been for her and everything that she's brought to it um it's amazing to have a fantastic partner that's it is the greatest thing in the world the the greatest decision i have i have ever made ever (laughs) um congratulations thank you the uh All right, so take so take me back through the origins of of the core of the business. Sure. So essentially, Madison has always had a great tournament scene, a great gaming store scene. However, one of the problems it always had was that uh, there's the west side of Madison, there's the east side of Madison, and there's downtown Madison. And downtown is where uh, the college is, and where a lot of businesses are, and a lot of retail locations. And there's one store in particular, State Street, which uh, is sort of the retail center for the store for for the city. And there were always stores that were attempting to cater towards the downtown neighborhood, but that could never quite pull it off. Uh, the West Side always had Pegasus Games. Uh, the East Side always had Misty Mountain, which was a huge one. That was Steve Port, who I mentioned earlier. He he ran Misty Mountain, so all the large tournaments were always on the East Side there. Uh, occasionally, he would rent out a hall and do it downtown, uh, close to the college, which was great for all the students. And uh, downtown always had a bunch of stores that were something else and also a magic store. There was a store called Pick-A-Book, which was this magazine store if you can believe those existed at a time in a bookstore and then in the basement they had comics and magic cards Uh, at one point there were like four or five stores that sold magic right on state street as sort of a side thing Uh, but eventually each one of them went away and just because whatever they were also doing was something that wasn't really sustainable like magazines obviously are not really something you can do a huge business around anymore with the internet sort of killing it uh, same with comic books. It's a lot harder to do it, especially in a high-rent area uh, like State Street is. And so once the last store on State Street folded, uh, myself and Jim Husted, who used to work for, who worked for one of those stores that folded, and Sam Black, who I'm sure everyone has heard of, the three of us got together and we said, the downtown really needs another store. And... Uh, uh, we, we think the three of us can do it. And so we got together and we put together a plan. And we, we really organized things. And we started Netherworld in the, in the early 2000s. And at this point, uh, Power Nine was being run out of my apartment. And once Netherworld was open for a while... Uh, it became obvious that as Power 9 was getting larger and larger, I was going to need more and more space. And I began sort of subletting part of Netherworld from itself to use as storage and uh, office space and uh, obviously a, a packing and distribu- distribution center for Power 9. And then uh, with the two of them working together really well and sort of, because in general... Game stores tend to be pretty dead on weekdays, you know, between 9 a.m. Most of them don't even open until noon, so they'd be dead from 9 a.m. until 4 or 5 p.m. 
And so Netherworld and Power9 both got a boost from that because Power9 was able to use sort of the gaming area of Netherworld for all of the stuff that it would normally need a lot of square feet for and then just clean up at the end of the day and turn it into a regular gaming store. So we were both sort of working in symbiosis using kind of a shared space. And eventually, of course, Power9 outgrew that and we began needing to rent a lot more space for our uses and eventually the two companies physically separated. But that was in the early 2000s in the 2000, 2001, 2003 range is when that was taking off for us. And so, you know, what, what role does the inter internet play in the period of time where things are taking off and you're starting to hire more people and, you know, starting to enjoy the first fruits of your labors? Like, like how, how soon were you selling on eBay? Uh, eBay was a huge role in it. Uh, I first began selling, or I first began using eBay in 1997, 1998 or so. And it really, it really opened my eyes to the casual market and the international market. And it was really helpful in terms of finding more reliable ways to price things than just whatever the magazines said things were worth back then. Uh, I mean, it's not... I, I was a little harsh on the magazines earlier. Uh, it's, it's partly that their sampling system wasn't as good as, obviously, the Internet can be. But it was also because they were a print publication, and they would sample things, they would make the issue, and then a couple weeks later it would get printed, and then a couple weeks after that it would arrive in your hands, and you're already dealing with stale information through through no fault of of anything aside from the medium itself. So eBay was great in terms of finding a lot more up-to-date information. Uh, and that was huge in the, in the business because like, like in almost any business, information is really an underrated, very valuable asset that you need to, you need to figure out how to manage. Sure, because on eBay, you've got uh, access to past sales data um, and you've yep. also got the data you're building up that you're, you know, you're tracking inside your own accounting system about what's actually selling and at what price. Exactly. So, I mean, at this point, you're, you're closing in on 300,000 sales on eBay. Um, and you guys you know, have been... we're, we're closing in on 300,000 feedback on eBay. Ah, sorry. Uh, <laughs> that's no problem. Um, so, so eBay, sales eBay in has... the millions. Yes, uh, the tens of millions. Um, eBay has changed their feedback system several times. Uh, one time, it, it used to just be every single feedback you ever had was counted. And they've been fiddling with it, so it's more representative of everything that you've had in the last year or so. And so they've changed the way they've actually counted it. And there were a couple times where your number just sort of changed based on their system. But yeah, the, the the feedback is just is just let me what is it now? It is currently sales that have had feedback left for it, which on eBay is anywhere from twenty to forty percent, depending on your clientele base. But it's not just that; it's uh, if someone, let's say, you were to purchase something from us through eBay and you purchased ten four sets of cards. If you leave uh, feedback for all 10 of those listings, 
it only raises our number by one. Gotcha. But fair, fair to say that you guys are in the top tier of eBay power sellers for Magic, right? Yes. Uh, there are three or four very, very large sellers on eBay. And while eBay doesn't... While eBay doesn't give you a way to scrape things by a specific industry, there are a couple other websites that do. Uh, and when we check them out, you know, we, we recognize the big names on there. And we're usually in the top three for eBay. So having spent the better part of 20 years as a power seller, um, what are some of the key lessons that you've learned along the way that people that are trying to get into selling on eBay might uh, consider valuable? For eBay specifically, that's tough. Uh, eBay is certainly going through a lot of changes. Um, to be totally honest, I am, and if you've read my Facebook posts, I'm sure you're familiar. Uh, I, I'm to, not. To a certain extent. I, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not totally optimistic about eBay's future. When eBay was the only game in town. They sort of they, they came up with this policy of being very very buyer friendly, and that was the absolute correct thing to do at the time. They were the only thing that existed that was like it, and so if they always if they always defended the buyers, which outnumber sellers anywhere from ten to one to a hundred to one, they they would be able to keep their business going because if you're a buyer and you have a bad experience on a website, you're not going to go back. But if you're a seller and you have 200 good experiences and three bad experiences, you're going to chalk it up as exactly. the cost of doing business. And and that was that was sort of one of eBay's most amazing sort of breakthroughs. Is just it, it, to, it, it's almost cliche, but to screw the seller in favor of the buyer, and that works really really well when you're the only game in town, which is what eBay was for such a long time. Uh, but with Amazon coming off coming out and with industry-specific websites coming out in our in our industry, of course, there's uh, TCG Player, which is huge and does an amazing job. Uh, eBay's really, really been suffering lately, and they're losing a ton of business to Amazon in general and to TCG Player in our industry specifically. So in terms of advice for people who are thinking about selling on eBay, uh, it's, it's definitely, there's definitely a learning curve there. Uh, the biggest thing I would say if you're just starting off is is to, is to go into it with the with the knowledge that if something bad happens, eBay is going to side with the buyer in almost every case. And it's very restrictive on new sellers who can't necessarily afford to take a hit of a total loss on a couple different packages, especially if they're large packages, and especially if they're by someone who's targeting them, intending to scam them in some way. Uh, and there's a lot of that both internationally and domestically. Uh, the biggest issue with international is that it's so hard to, to actually get products to people in a way that is tracked. You can you can ship 100, 100 plain white envelopes internationally, and they'll probably all get there. Uh, but if they don't get there or even worse, if the person claims that they didn't get there, eBay is going to take the money back from you and give it back to the person who says it didn't get there. And that's one of the biggest pitfalls is that 
uh, a couple hits like that can really be pretty damaging for people. Uh, but in terms of getting into eBay, uh, I guess the two biggest tips I would have would be use your title intelligently and uh, take good pictures. Uh, it's kind of the generic <laughs> eBay advice, but they, they really are true. eBay is, is, has been changing up their algorithm so that it really supports people who have good, high-quality pictures and who are able to use the title intelligently. So when we're talking about using the title intelligently, we're talking about the title of the listing on eBay. So what, what specifically uh, uh, constitutes using that intelligently? So they give, you, they give you 80 characters to work with, and you want to make it so that someone searching for something is going to so, someone searching for something is going to find your listing and look at it and consider buying it both in terms of being able to find the thing on eBay and both in terms of being able to differentiate yours from someone else's so in terms of being able to find it on eBay you want it to be in the correct category and you want everything to be spelled right and you want to use as many sort of searching keywords as you can. For example, if you're selling a Wrath of God, if you don't just want your the title of your listing to be Wrath of God, you want it to be one and then Wrath of God, and then you probably want to mention that it's in sixth edition, and then you want to throw a MTG in there, for example, because you, you have to, the best thing you can do in, in, in a business in terms of figuring out what you should be doing as a merchant, as a seller, is figuring out what, what your buyer is going to be doing, what your average buyer is going to be doing. And if he's going to eBay to find a card from you, if he types in Wrath of God, and that's his only search thing, um, he's going to come up with all sorts of weird religious texts and random movies that happen to have that in the title and other things like that, I'm sure. There's some metal bands out there that they'll show up in their search results. <laughs> so, so when your buyer first types in Wrath of God into eBay and, and finds all this crap they don't want to see, He's going to say, oh, yeah, obviously, Wrath of God's a pretty common phrase. So I'm going to throw MTG in there. So Wrath of God, MTG. And if, you're, if your title doesn't have MTG in there, it's impossible for that customer to buy from you. And so what you need to do as an eBay seller is think, what is my buyer going to do to find me? And how can I make it as easy as possible for him to, to find me? And that's what using the title is about on eBay. One of the little tricks I've used over time is um, if I have four copies of something, but I think that they're more likely to sell individually than as a set, um, I usually uh, indicate that the pr it's a one-times product, meaning that you're buying a you can buy a single copy, but in brackets yep. at the end of the title, I put four available. Um, yeah, and that's a that's a that's a great trick that is is borderline <laughs> allowed on eBay. Uh, because people searching for, so let's say, let's just go back to the Wrath of God thing. If you search, if you are, if you list one Wrath of God, let's just say they're $8 and then you put four available at the end, people searching for the number four, along with their search for Wrath of God, MTG, they're going to find yours. However, eBay's big worry is that someone's going to buy one from you thinking that they're getting four because you happen to have four in the title. And eBay, as we talked about before, is very, very protective of their buyers. Uh, so in some instances, putting a four when it's merely a quantity available 
is something that they would consider to be keyword spamming. So in some situations, they would take that listing down or tell you to revise it. Interesting. Uh, however, it's, it, it's still something that's, that's done a ton on eBay. It's, it's, still, it's still very unregulated. It's one of those things that you can get in trouble for. And it's, it's something that if you're starting out, I, I definitely recommend doing it until you get yelled at for it and then, and then cut that out. I mean, we talked, you, you mentioned earlier about people, you know, sellers starting out, uh, get ripped off once or twice and, and maybe turned off by the whole process. But it really is about evaluating the percentage um, of your sales that are, that are encountering a problem. I certainly get, you know, I'm a guy who sells a couple thousand dollars on eBay every month, um, you know, small time, but not inexperienced. I've been doing it for over a decade. And one of the things I've noticed is that it will it inevitably i under the buyer production policy i'm going to get ripped off a couple of times per year um but yes, in the grand uh, in the grand scheme of yeah. things um it really is just a cost of doing business and rarely has any uh happens not nearly frequently enough to cause any kind of major problem with my bottom line right and and that's exactly the thing it's just a question of you it happens to you on a certain percentage and it happens to us at a certain percentage and we have done a whole bunch of things actively and preventatively to minimize that percentage. However, someone just starting off isn't going to come in with that. And they're a lot more likely both to do something accidentally wrong and, and just to be targeted by someone who says, you know, I'm not going to rip off this guy because he looks like he knows what he's doing. Uh, but this new seller, this guy looks like he's pretty easy bait. And that's one of the that's one of the things is that for us, it's a cost of doing business and I wish it weren't. Uh, but it, but it definitely is, and I, and I totally get that. But for someone just starting off, um, if it's one of their first sales, it, it it can make it seem like that cost of doing business over the long term is going to be much higher. Or in a lot of other situations, it's just one of those things where it's it's so it's so frustrating and it's so emotionally and psychically draining that you don't want to do it anymore. Um, a great example is that for for certain kinds of buyer protection on larger things, you need to have you need to have tracking with delivery confirmation once it gets past a certain dollar value. However, if you are not aware of that and someone buys it buys something from you and you send it, you just send it with delivery confirmation. You can you can watch that package the whole time, and maybe it's your first big sale, and you're very excited about it, and you're you're updating this, the you're updating the tracking on the on USPS's website, for example. And you see it arrive and you're really happy and a couple days goes by and the buyer doesn't leave feedback. So you contact him and then they claim they never got it because they're, they're going to take advantage of you not having used signature confirmation. And that, that can be an especially frustrating situation for people because they know it's there and they know that they're getting ripped off and there's just nothing that they can do about it as a seller. Because eBay won't back you on that, on that particular circumstance. Right. Uh, because it's beyond a certain value, at, and that, I don't want anyone to, to quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure it's it's seven hundred and fifty dollars. You need to have signature confirmation for it. For a while, it was two fifty, and they've kind of bounced around. But I think they've settled on it's either two fifty or seven fifty. I'll, I'll go out on a limb and say that. Um, so if you send this gigantic package and you just send it with delivery confirmation, even if you send it with insurance and delivery confirmation, if you send it without signature confirmation, um, eBay is going to side with the buyer if the buyer decides to scam you and take advantage of the system. And the more frustrating part about the insurance thing is that if you buy insurance, 
and delivery confirmation, for example, and not signature confirmation, and you send this thing and you see it delivered, you're going to go, well, it was delivered, and eBay's going to say, well, you didn't have signatures, so we can't necessarily believe you, and then you're going to say, okay, well, I've got insurance on it, so then you go to USPS, <laughs> and you say, hey, you know, this, this was lost, I'd like to collect the insurance on it, and USPS is going to look at it and be like, this wasn't lost, it was delivered, see? And it's things like that can be very, very demoralizing in terms of what you're going to do long term with the business you're creating. I guess the other factor there is if you're just starting out on eBay um, or on Amazon, because they both have you know, similar circumstances um, surrounding the way that buyers are protected and, and sellers, um, a lot of the responsibility is on the sellers to make sure that everything works out okay. The, um, you know, if you're, it's your first uh, piece of feedback and it's negative, then you may not yeah. get a chance at a second one. Right. Uh, yes, that's a very good point. If, uh, <laughs> if something does go wrong and someone leaves you negative feedback, that's certainly going to influence uh, how, how future buyers see you. That's an excellent point. And I guess one of the other changes along the way was that it used to be that both buyers and sellers rated each other, and now yes. only the buyer rates, right? Yes, that is absolutely correct, and that was <laughs> a major change. That was a major change, and, and as a seller, I think it is terrible, um, but I, I think it's one of those things like when Wizards changed the pre-releases. It, it happens to be terrible for me personally, but I, I do think it was the right choice, even though it, it's very disempowering. Well, and eBay would argue that, yes, it reduced their overhead and their expenses, and uh, but that the end result is supposedly better for all the sellers as well because it increases the velocity of transactions on the platform as a whole through the fostering of uh, greater experiences for the buyers. So that the, the theory being that if they never have a bad experience and they can always get their money back, they're going to be more willing to spend more money on the platform over time and everybody shares in that. That is, that is absolutely true if you look at it in a vacuum without Amazon. Um, and when they made that decision, Amazon barely barely existed. So again, it was it was one of those things that I think was correct at the time, and it, it's still correct. It's just not as good as it was back then because they they minimize seller they minimize buyer attrition by doing what we just described by making it so that buyers didn't feel like they were being targeted by sellers who they had a bad experience with. Uh, however, taking away that power from the sellers leads to seller attrition, and that's something that eBay has never focused on, especially in the last couple of years with Amazon and things like TCG springing up. And I think that's, that's really one of the things that's really dooming eBay lately and in the long term is that they're, they're not paying any attention to seller attrition. They're, they're so focused on keeping the buyers, which is, which is a great move. And as I said earlier, very innovative for the business when they first started off. But you, you, can't, you can't keep losing sellers at the rate that they're losing them. So is your theory that the consolidation... Uh, that consolidation takes place amongst the sellers where it's a survival of the fittest and only the biggest sharks are still swimming in the pool and therefore there's not as much price competition or selection competition from you know smaller scale vendors? I guess, let me think about that for a second. It's more, I think seller attrition and seller drift are, are the best way to explain it in that in that if you are if you're selling on eBay and you have a couple bad experiences with buyers 
or you notice your sales dipping and you say to yourself, I really need other sales outlets. So you start checking out TCG Player and you start checking out Amazon. And now you essentially have your inventory in three different places. And maybe you're managing it manually or you're just putting certain things on each of them. Or like us, you have some sort of system that keeps track of what's where and makes sure that you're not overselling anything. You start looking at all three different different selling platforms and you start to realize that because of the way each of those selling platforms works, you're being rewarded more for putting more stuff on Amazon uh, and on TCG than you are on eBay. For example, one of the, one of the simplest, uh, I've got two simple, explanation, uh, two simple examples of them. Uh, when you list stuff on TCG and you list stuff on Amazon, you're essentially only charged final value fees. So if you have um, 10,000 individual cards, it's really worth it to just list all 10,000 of them in their own listing on both TCG and on Amazon because they sit there forever or they sell and then you make money. Whereas on eBay, you have to pay both final value fees, which are less than the other two, but you also have to pay listing fees for which the other ones have an effective zero cost for. So you're not rewarded at all for having a wide inventory on eBay as opposed to a deep inventory. And that's one of the one, one of the big advantages to TCG Player and Amazon is that you're really rewarded for having a wide inventory regardless of its depth, whereas on eBay you're rewarded much more for having a deep inventory. Uh, and then the other big problem with eBay in terms of our industry specifically is that they, they do have a minimum price. Uh, so on TCG, for example, you, you can buy commons for $0.05 cents or $0.11 cents or $0.25 cents and bundle it all together, whereas on eBay there's a minimum of $0.99 cents for buy it nows. So there's tons of EDH cards that we just can't sell on eBay because the only way because they're worth $0.35, cents, for example. So we can list them as a four of for a buck forty or a buck twenty or a buck sixty and sell them occasionally, but we can't list a one X because the cheapest we can make that one X is ninety-nine cents and no one's gonna buy that. And so you wouldn't do an end run around that just by increasing the shipping cost to match whatever you wanted to get out of the deal? Uh so eBay made a couple of changes to get around that a long time ago and they're sort of hurting them in a legacy fashion. But you, you can't, 99 cents is the cheapest your thing can be, and that's with free shipping. So you could sell that 1x thing that's worth 30 cents or 20 cents at 99 cents, and maybe some people will buy it, but you're paying 3 cents a month or 5 cents a month or 10 cents a month to keep it listed. So unless it's selling fairly regularly at that inflated price, uh, you're, you're, you're not going to be making money on the listing overall. Got it. And so you guys are you're running a major operation on eBay. Um, are you also selling through Amazon and TCG? That is not a question I can answer right now. Uh, <laughs> we have the we have the website and we have the the public eBay thing. Um, we're I, I can say we're going to be much much bigger on TCG and on Amazon than we are right now in the near future. And there's actually a couple other new platforms that I'm really looking forward to working with in the near future that'll be coming out cool. soon. And where is, where is your, you're now running a retail operation. Where does that, where is that located? Uh, that's still Netherworld Games, downtown Madison. Uh, it's one of the, 
oldest, longest running stores in town. We still have those Wednesday night drafts that we talked about at the very beginning of the of the thing that started in the in the mid to late nineties in Madison. Uh, we have that retail location, and then we also have a retail location right on State Street, which serves as much of our warehousing and distribution for all of the for the different platforms and for the brick and mortar stores that we work with and for eBay, for example. Uh, so we always have every card just about at the State Street location. There's a whole bunch of the really, really old stuff that's kept off-site for, for obvious reasons. That's where. Um, but in terms of retail locations, we have both the downtown Mifflin Street location and the State Street location. Have you ever been to Madison for any of the Grand Prix or the Pro Tour or anything? No, unfortunately, the the furthest west I usually get in the Midwest is in Ohio, where I've got family. Got, uh, it, got it. So Netherworld's been running is has been in operation since uh, the early two thousands. Um, did you guys have any scares along the way where things were headed downhill? Any any moments in the you know the fifteen years intervening where things have uh, uh, looked like there might be trouble. Sales have always been increasing on a year-to-year basis and on a month-to-previous-year's-month basis. So, uh, for example, any August is better than any previous August, but any August is probably not better than the previous December, for example. Um, so every year it's increased, both in terms of volume and in terms of presence and how well it's done uh the one time that we hit a rough patch was really uh champions of kamigawa block that was the last time that we really hit a stumbling block in terms of what was going on uh that was still early 2000s maybe uh was that 2004 release date Yep, that was 2004. Uh, Magic, partly I think because of Champions Block itself, really hit a bit of a slump then. And especially coming off of of Mirrodin and how exciting that format was. Uh, And so that was a a rough time for for us in general. Uh, But it really helped us... It helped us sort of plan for what might happen if that ever happens again. Uh, and as as a small business owner, one of the things you should always be doing is sort of catastrophe planning what to do if, if whatever it is that you're doing all of a sudden changes and, and what can happen to bring about those changes and what the early warning signs are because we weren't really doing it then. So champions, the sort of rut that we hit in champions kind of caught us by surprise because just sales were, were down and we, we couldn't figure out why. We were enjoying playing it, but we were a competitive player players and, and and we always enjoy magic and uh yeah that one caught us by surprise but there were no real no like you know fire inspections shutting us down for a month or anything like that or uh or the landlord selling our building and then the next people not renewing us and us having to move in two weeks or anything like that there was nothing really catastrophic or surprising that, that caught us off guard we were we were pretty well prepared for what we were doing uh, Sam, uh, Sam, Jim, and and I were all 
we all had our, our roles at the store and uh, we worked pretty well together. And so you're a partner in Netherworld and you own Power Nine Games outright? Uh, at the time I was, uh, in the late 2000, not 2000, the late, in the late part of the first decade, so like 2008, 2009, uh, Jim and I bought Sam out of Netherworld. And then about three or four years ago, I bought Jim out of Netherworld. So I am now the full owner of both Netherworld and Power9. Got it. So Netherworld is your retail outlet. You're also running uh, a major operation on eBay, um, looking to expand into other arenas with that. And um, another big piece of, uh, you know, the mystique around your name and activities in the community has uh, has always been about the massive amount of Power 9 inventory that you're holding. Um, pictures have floated around uh, the internet of piles of black loti. Um, can you speak a little bit about uh, at what point you started acquiring large volumes of, you know, vintage staples and Power 9 cards and, and how that has kind of evolved over the years? Sure. Uh, first, let me... Uh... Let me hit you on one of my pet peeves, and I don't know if you're, if you're, uh... <laughs> so the plural of lotus, is, of lotus is actually lotuses, because it's actually Greek and not Latin. I, uh, for no real good reason, I took four years of Latin, so that was one of the, one of the <laughs> things we learned, was that... I stand corrected. <laughs> so it is so, black lotuses. So back to your, your huge p pile of lotuses. And it is, it is moxes, it's not moxin. That's, that's another great one in our industry. Um, yeah, so what what happened with them was that I was always... It, it's it's funny because you describe... If, if, if you're sitting now in 2017, or even if you were doing this in 2013, and you were talking about the early 90s and the vintage scene and the alpha and beta cards, if you say all of the factors now, it seems obvious in retrospect. And those factors are... One they invented the concept of a CCG, so they didn't really know what they were doing, so there was no playtesting, which resulted in there being tons of overpowered cards and tons of really, really bad cards and not really a great uh, medium. And that's one of the things that Magic's done a lot lately is they have done really well, and that's what R&D does, is it balances things. It makes it so that they're not printing broken things and they're not printing absolute terrible things. But so one factor is way back then they were printing stuff that was way too powerful. Uh, the second factor is that it was the early sets and they had no idea how popular it was going to be and their player base was much smaller. So they were way underprinted. And the, the third key thing there is uh, the promise of the reserve list. So you've got this situation where there's a bunch of cards that are really powerful within the context of the game. You've got them being way underprinted to an ever-expanding population of possible buyers. And you've got their promise that they're never going to print those things again. And looking back at that now, those three things seem like an obvious recipe for stuff to be incredibly valuable. But back then, most people weren't thinking in terms of that. Um, but I was. And, and that's sort of how it started, is I started acquiring these things, the lotuses, the moxes, the ancestrals, uh, and it, it, even things like moats and nether voids, mana drains, 
uh, Library of Alexandria, especially because, uh, as I as I mentioned earlier, I, I just got married, and, and my wife's name is actually Alexandria, so that's one of her favorite cards as well. Um, and all these cards, there's there's just there's never going to be an increase in their supply, but there's always going to be an increase in their demand. And it it seemed. It, it seemed like a thing that I could put money into that wouldn't ever go down. And back in 2007, 2008, I had a meeting with uh, my bankers and they were trying to get me to invest money in the stock market. <laughs> and it was, it, that, was, that was right before the big crash and they were very excited about their numbers. But even, even at the height of that bubble before then, um, Power9 was, was outperforming any of those regular things that you could buy without going really high risk. Exactly. And then the bubble happened and then the bubble happened in it, uh, the bubble in, in real estate, not the bubble in magic happened. And, uh, it, it just sort of validated everything that I had really, that I had really, uh, that I'd really been believing in and been thinking about in terms of the industry. Uh, and that knowledge, it, it came to me, not really in a flash, but it, it came to me slowly because those cards, even back in, in 99 or 2000, they were worth 50 bucks or 100 bucks or $200, depending on which, which piece of the Power 9 we're talking about. And I would notice that I would buy, I mean, I was, I was a pseudo vendor at that point, and I would pick them up, I would buy them at one price, and I would sell them at another price. I would I'd buy them, let's, these aren't the real numbers, but let's just say I was buying them at 100 and I would sell it at 200 and then a couple months later, I would I would come across another one, and I would I, all of a sudden I'd have to pay it one twenty on it, but I but I'd be able to sell it at two thirty or two forty or something. Another month would go by, and it just seemed like I was noticing them ever increasing in value and and never really having any substantial dips of any kind. And it, and it just occurred to me that if you could always sort of keep ahead of the market, you would be effectively surfing the wave of it and just doing really well by holding on to them. So, so is there a certain point where you ramped up acquisitions but stopped selling, on on the premise that you would that the annual returns would justify the holding costs? So I never I never stopped selling, and I still haven't stopped selling. Simply because you you don't want to be locking out um, you don't want to be locking out some customers by just never offering the thing to them. Uh, did I ever really ramp up buying? Um, there's no specific point where I ramped up buying. Um, there have been many points where I had, where I where I actually had doubts about it. Um, I remember when Black Lotus hit six hundred dollars, and there was a period of a month or two where I, where I couldn't buy any for less than like five hundred or five fifty, and uh, and there was there was part of me that was saying this is it, this is this is this is <laughs> This is the natural state that the Black Lotus should be in. This should be a six hundred to six hundred and fifty dollar card. So this is it. This is where you got to. All the ones that you bought at three hundred, all the ones you bought at a hundred. Um, this is where you should start selling them at. Um, but then you know it just just kept ramping up slowly. A couple couple months later, um, there there was no point where I ever said, uh, where I ever said. Where I ever said I'm gonna I'm gonna start doing this a lot more than I have before, uh, but it did sort of. It, it 
it was never an exponential increase. I, I guess it was an, a linear increase is, sure. is the best way I can describe it. But at some point, the, your inventory started to pile up faster than you were selling it. I, I think it, it did that. I think it was always doing that. Um, even before I had really made the the full realization of what the market was in terms of uh, that they were actually really good long-term investments. Um, and that was partly because I, I really liked the concept of them and I liked how scarce they were. And I, I named my company after them and it seemed silly to have a company called Power9 and not actually own a significant amount of Power9. So I was always sort of collecting them um but i was always willing to sell them if someone wanted to buy one uh there was never a point where i just where i just turned the whole thing off because you've got that buy list versus retail margin that's always right. in play and you can turn that cash over and buy something else at at buy list and then sell it at retail and you know why not keep the cycle running exactly um and the only time you don't want to do that is if you think something is seriously going to spike um I mean, like, and then, but that's going to be a lot more like a standard card that you think is going to spike is when you might want to consider turning off that, that particular faucet, increasing your buy price for stuff like the reserved list, um, staples. They, they had, they had that spike a couple of years ago, but I don't think they'll have something like that again. Right. So are you talking, when you're talking about a reserve list spike a couple of years ago, you're talking about uh, the fairly major price advances in the buy list prices for Power 9 that Star City posted after GP New Jersey in uh, November 2014? Right. Um, and uh, I, I've got I've to do a bit of defending of Star City here because one of, the, one of the frequent criticisms of them is that they are somehow manipulating the market or they are somehow controlling either all the vintage stuff or all the modern stuff or all of the standard stuff, depending on who you talk to. Uh, and things like that are, are just, they're really silly. Uh, they, they, Star City certainly has a huge inventory and they certainly have more sales and more purchasing than, than anyone else in the industry. That's indisputable. However, their percentage of the market within the industry is, is still so is still small enough that they that they can't really do the things that people frequently accuse them of doing. So I am of the opinion that when you see them do something like raise all their price all their buy prices on power cards or a couple of years before that uh, raise their prices on the Zendikar fetch lands, they aren't they aren't pushing the market. They aren't manipulating the market. They are reacting to information that they have which they have in advance of other people not not because wizards is giving them secret stuff but because they're seeing everything else that's happening for example they're seeing an uptick in their modern attendance or they're seeing a whole bunch of other modern staples are suddenly buying and selling for higher than they were previously and then they have very smart people there who reach the logical conclusion that one of the huge things for that format is going to be the Zendikar fetch lands. So we should be buying and selling these at a much higher price. And I'm of the opinion that they are, they're much more frequently reacting 
to the market that many of the rest of us don't have access to or can't even see. And that's why it seems like they are leading the market or manipulating things or, or pushing things. But, it, it, but they are still reacting just as you do when if you, if you had 20 of a card listed and it hadn't sold for months, but all of a sudden a guy buys a 4X and then the next day two people each buy 4Xs. You're going to say to yourself, there's something going on with this one card. All of a sudden it's being played in a deck. All of a sudden people want it. Uh, so I should raise the price on it. I should try to acquire more of them. And they just have a much better grip on the overall marketplace and the overall. Yeah, I mean, this is just a function of um, being a vendor operating in a marketplace with good data, right? If you and, and, and they happen to be a vendor that has an especially high level of exposure because they were smart enough to start a tournament series. Um, yes. So they not, not only have access to their tournament data, um, and, and since they're collecting deck lists, um, right. they can also see which cards are being the most played based on their own data. And they also have their own buy-sell data um, and volume data um, from their own accounting system as one of the largest yep. online retailers. Yeah, and, and, and it's, it's tricky, too, because everything, because everything that happens there is sort of a black box where we just see sometimes what goes into it, and we definitely see what comes out of it, but we don't know what happens inside of it. And so it just looks like magic that all of a sudden they, they're, they're paying more on Zendikar Fetchlands, for example, and all of a sudden the market reacts and, and everyone's doing that. So it looks like they're manipulating it, but it's, it's not. It's just that they're smart and they're, they're good at what they do. And that's great. Um, and getting back to the reserve list spike of a couple of years ago, uh, they, they began paying a lot more on it. And I mean, that's something that, that I myself personally had been doing for a long time. Uh, but there were a couple other indications that had come out in, in the previous four to six months that that some sort of uh, market correction was impending anyway, and they just reacted to it in a in a less than subtle way, <laughs> and that had a, a big a big effect on the market itself. And it's not to say that when they do things, it doesn't affect the market. It's just a question of are they doing this with the intent of affecting the market, or are they doing it? But I mean, there's two two major factors in play there, right? Um, that are you know not having been in the room having the discussions over a period of time i can't say for certain but i would guess that it's you know two things going on one um they can't keep inventory in stock whenever they whenever they price a high quality card from the power nine say an unlimited lotus and they put it up for sale it sells um and they have more trouble finding copies to buy at the old buy list price because people seem uh, more reluctant to let go of them right i mean if you're, if you're getting both of those those signals from the market then you know what else can you do other, as a responsible retailer other exactly. than to um, invest further in the cards in question? Yeah, and, 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 and that spike, that particular spike, uh, was, was noticed by most of the public in, after they raised all their buy prices on things. Um, <coughs> and that was one of the things that spiked the power market, and, and it's not something that I think can necessarily happen again in, in exactly the same way, or is actually even likely to happen again in a similar way. I mean, it was an, it was an especially it was an especially prescient weekend for me because that that tournament was one of the only ones I attended coming down from Toronto to the U.S. Um, and also the weekend I decided to trade up into uh, a Lotus from Modern Staples and then write a <laughs> yep. big article about it and. Just so happened to have done it on the exact perfect weekend, trading at the values from before the start of the weekend and exiting with a 
near mint or SP plus Lotus. Um, that's been the centerpiece of my collection since. Right. And see if, if someone just looks at you, they, they could, they could easily accuse you of having been the reason for the spike because that was when you made your move. So, I mean, one of the things I think is interesting here is that, you know, power nine vintage and legacy cards, as you said, have outperformed the stock market for, you know, a good period of time, uh, a solid, uh, you know, a look over time at the U S uh, you know, main stock indexes is going to tell you that they, they are in the 8 to 10% range kind of thing over time. And the Lotuses have never, you know, doubled overnight or anything, but they've shown um, greater gains than that over the period of, say, the last decade. Um, you know, 10 years ago, you could get a Lotus for somewhere between 500 and 1,000, depending on what year we're talking about. We're talking about, say, an unlimited near mint copy. And, and now we're talking about, you know, 5K or so for near mint mint Lotus. Is that about right? Yep. Right. So, yep. and and Wizards though has shown this increasing reticence in recent years to support vintage, legacy, and most recently modern, as they seemingly realize that eternal formats are less helpful at selling product than standard and limited are. But at the same time, we've got the children of the '90s kind of heading in toward their peak earning years and the potential for further nostalgia purchases. So when you're trying to pick, yes. you know, wrap, roll all this up and, and decide what your next moves are, when you try to picture the market for high-end magic cards in, say, five or ten years, what do you, what do you predict will happen? Um, so there's, there's one thing I want to correct, and it's this sort of... I can't remember how you phrased it just now. You may have said Wizards thinks that the vintage scene doesn't help it, or you may have said that uh, Wizards knows that the vintage scene doesn't help sell packs. Um... I believe that Wizards thinks that. I don't necessarily think it's true. I really do believe that any format that you come up with that involves magic cards helps both the brand and the sales of packs. And I think that's that's one of my biggest criticisms of Wizards right now is that they are they're sort of turning their back on the vintage market and some of the older formats, even 93, 94, which is huge now. And they're sort of, they're, they're not supporting them. And I think that that is not a great move because anything that gets people playing magic is good for wizards long term. And while they're not cycling through as many standard cards as other people are, they still need to buy some of them and they still need to support stores that are holding these events and they still need to purchase singles. And any amount of financial transactions that occur with, uh, say, the vintage crowd and standard cards helps the sale of packs either by those vintage people buying packs directly or more likely buying the singles from someone who either had to buy them from someone himself or buy the packs and crack it himself. Uh, so I, I think it's a, it's a very short short-sighted uh, it's a very short-sighted path for Wizards to take to say we're not going to support Vintage because those formats don't sell packs. Because even even if it is somehow possible that they don't sell packs, those formats still support local gaming stores and still support events, which absolutely makes Wizards money. Um, but that's, that's the only thing I would really want to clarify with what you just said. I, I, I can't you, if, if you are of the other opinion, I'd be happy to listen to you on it. Well, what I was, what I was just saying, yeah, I mean, what I was just saying was that the, the you know, the argument playing devil's advocate on their behalf is that, yeah, um, 
sure, those people might buy some cards, but they're not going to buy four boxes to get up to speed on their standard collection. And and Wizards, Wizards is trying to build revenues, keep growth humming so that they have the full support of their overlords at Hasbro. And that if, if you imagine a world where all we ever do is play vintage and they're, they're holding true to the reserve list and we're not reprinting key cards, then they can print sets. Let's say they printed a vintage master's set, which was all new cards and was specifically targeted at vintage as a format so that more people would play it. And it includes cards that are of equivalent power level to the power nine so that people can start building decks with new cards only and the reserve list isn't a huge barrier. The power creep involved in fueling that format versus something like standard that rotates out over a period of time suggests that it's not sustainable, that you couldn't print, if you print hundreds of cards at the same power level as uh, Moxes and Lotuses, um, then you end up in a pretty bad place from, from a game design perspective. And so they prefer yeah. they prefer to feed formats that renew themselves every once in a while by simply lopping off the previous cards, both so that we will buy more cards, but also so that they can maintain the power creep in the game at a, a at a much lower level. Yeah, and that's that's totally agreeable. The one thing I would uh, I would edit with what you just said is that if you take if you take a hundred vintage players if you take 100 legacy format players and you just tell them that they can't play the formats anymore you don't all of a sudden have 100 standard players you have maybe 10 standard players or 20 standard players and you now have someone who's going to go into kickboxing or fishing as his hobby and fair enough um there, there's a ton of people who they enjoy the old formats because that's what they like and if i would i would agree with you that if, if if it were true that all if all of them stopped doing that and did standard instead then i think the argument would hold weight but but if you talk to these guys that is that is not who they are they are they love these formats and they enjoy the things that these formats do that standard can't do and that's why wizards should be supporting them because it's it's not direct money but it's absolutely industry money and they are the only one in the industry so i mean to that i would say um two things one that if the guys were primarily playing vintage or legacy and are currently not buying very many new cards and they cannot be converted to play newer formats then they're not even in the market they're not they're not they're not functional members of the primary market that that drives revenue for wizards although that you could make the argument that they still support local gaming stores and so maybe they have some impact um on generating, you know, secondary revenue that that channels upstream, and the, the second half of that is that the the if they're not in the market, um, but Wizards feels like one of the the things that could happen is that people drain it of standard towards those other formats. The longer you play standard and or modern, now you have enough cards you might be able to play legacy. You play legacy long enough, maybe you can get into vintage. You consistently are pushing people that might might have been, you know, squarely in standard or squarely in modern or squarely in legacy further up the power curve creep in terms of format. 
Um, and they buy less and less cards as they go because their collection gets bigger and bigger and they have less need to. They can trade cards out on Puka Trade. Um, they can sell cards to raise money to get other cards they need. If Leovold suddenly becomes a thing in Legacy, they can trade some old duels to get into that. Um, and that all of that is kind of the complete opposite of where they want to be, which is that we're going to put out a new set and we want you to buy, you know, at least one box, if not two to four boxes, if we can get it from you. I can I can certainly see that. Um, I I don't think my issue with that is that it's it's <clears throat> excuse me. It feels like you essentially have if you look at it in terms of a subscription service model. Um, you've got your, your standard grinders, your guys who are buying several boxes, your casual players. Those guys are all have sort of the premium wizard subscription service. They're all paying uh, $100 to $300 a month for new product, and that money goes directly to wizards. Whereas the legacy guys, they're spending much, much less on stuff that goes directly to wizards. But... It, it is still some amount that they are selling that goes to wizards. So it's like they're in the subscription service at a much, much lower level. But they, but they are still throwing something in there. And they are also supporting and being an advocate for your brand as a whole. Uh, and, and I think those two things are not something that are replaceable by moving them to the higher subscription level, and they're also not something that is valueless. Um, because, like I said before, and like you agreed with, uh, even them just going to the store once a week or twice a week for a legacy event and helping keep the LGS in business by, by buying into the tournaments has a value to Wizards itself and helps it make it so that, I mean, if the store is doing better, they can afford to get bigger and they can afford to sell stuff possibly at a lower margin. So even though the legacy guys aren't directly buying, for example, standard boxes, they're still subsidizing the industry and subsidizing the, in the businesses that do buy and sell the boxes. And that has a value to them. even if To it's whatever extent they are, they are cycling cards through the LGS. Or buying a coffee or a sandwich or new sleeves or what have you. Right, the LGS, the LGS is one side of it, and then the other side of it is just, just propping up the... I mean, for example, my business, um, when a guy comes and sells me legacy cards as a, as a vendor, and then I resell them, hopefully for more at some point, uh, it makes it so that I can stay in business longer and I can keep running standard tournaments, for example. Sure. It's, 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 all, it's, all, part of, it's all part of a whole ecosystem, and yeah, it's all it's all interconnected. Yeah, they're not criminals. They're not thieves. And they're, they're spending money, and that money is going somewhere. And even if it's not going directly to wizards, it's helping support and expand the ecosystem that is Magic the Gathering. And that's incredibly valuable to wizards of the coast. So, I mean, one of the... I mean, and that's, one how, of the that's how I see the whole thing. Sure. So, I mean, one of the tension points is certainly, you know, the aforementioned reserve list. Um, yes. and you know, one of the things that I think is frequently underestimated because many people, you know, for years have called for them just to abolish it and reprint black Lotus and so forth. And 
I've fre frequently been a vocal opponent of that process because, um, A, I don't think that older formats are the easiest way to grow the game um, for, the, for the reasons I already listed. The, the other part of it, though, is that I think there's a massive uh, brand equity benefit to having unattainable cards. Yes, I, I agree with that, too. That's, that's an excellent point that I, that I frequently forget to <laughs> forget to bring up to people is, is, is having the... I, I think people underestimate it completely, especially the ones that you know, ha have never had to kind of think through the logic behind um, how you generate equity in a brand and, and how you make people excited about something on a subliminal level. But you know, how many people have justified to their significant others or family members or friends that their involvement in Magic um, is either... Uh, you know, when talking about how great the game is, they, they usually mention one of two things, either the fact that there's a professional pro tour where people can make tens of thousands of dollars by winning a tournament, which seems to provide some you know, form of validation that even people that don't try to grind out the circuit and make it to that level still seem to find solace in. And there's also the, the fact that, you know, there's a card worth, you know, $100,000 that, a, you know, a perfect black lotus could be worth 100k is a talking point that has been mentioned many times in the media. And, it, and is the kind of and thing. that is great for the brand. It's great it for the gets brand. articles written about you. It gets NPR pieces written about you. Exactly. And and there's a and their commitment to the reserve list is one of the only pillars um, of trust that has never really been shaken. Um, uh, and in many other ways, there have been betrayals. Many you know things like Smuggler's Copper being banned after only being out um, for less than a year, and and all of the other bannings that have had to go down in various formats over time to make sure that those formats stayed healthy, um, you know, have always rubbed people the wrong way. And and one of the things that they've right. never gone back on is that the the people that were into the game earliest and that have the most powerful cards don't have to worry about the value of their long term collection being severely underslashed by you know a short sighted cash grab. Right. And uh, I I have. I, I myself personally have very mixed feelings about the reserve list itself because uh, it's it's certainly a barrier. It's it's it, it's both a very good and a very bad thing. Um, well, well, I mean, I think I think it's a barrier to getting into specific formats. Um, yes, and those formats are really fun to play, especially once you've been playing for a while. Um, they feel very different. They have a completely different experience and texture to other formats. Um, you can get blown out on turn one, or you can have a 20-turn grindy game um, in Vintage. Uh, and in Legacy, um, you know, there's a, a lot of play to the games uh, for, the, for the most part, but you can still get blown out kind of quick. Um, and yeah. that those are very different experiences than Draft or, or Sealed or uh, a pre-release um, that are valuable. Now. All of that being said, it's not like support for Vintage Online, um, to whatever degree it's been offered, um, and the fact that you can get, you know, most of the Power Nine and duels, and you know, some of the duels are less than three bucks right now on Magic Online, and people still aren't going out of their way to play the format. Now you can make the argument that it's, you know, largely because Wizards doesn't push the format online or or choose to support it. Um, yeah. But you know, Vintage Super League's been out there for a while. And it's not like we're seeing some massive influx in vintage activity online. Right. Yeah. It's it's uh. It is one of the one of the one of the promises one of the one of the betrayals they have not done, and they are both 
lauded for that and criticized for it. All right. So if we if we take it, you know, we've looked at over all these factors. So taking all of that information into account, when you try to picture the market for high end magic cards in five or ten years, what do you think is going to happen? Uh, my expectation is that they will continue to creep up at at a reasonable at a reasonable and, and steady pace uh, somewhere in the I guess. If I had to put an eight to fifteen percent per year range, I can't see anything, anything huge taking away from that, uh, and I can't see anything really spiking them again. Uh, the two caveats to that would be: one, I expect some of them to do better than others based on. Uh, what Wizards decides to do with their support of it. Uh, for example, they they seem to be signaling to the market that they're not going to be really supporting the older formats. And the effect of that is that some of the things that have gone up a bunch lately that are more tournament cards rather than memorabilia or nostalgia, as you mentioned before, uh, might not grow as fast or might even go down. So things like moat for example um might not go up as fast as something like black lotus or a, a great one is bizarre of baghdad because uh if you think about it in terms of nostalgia and in terms of our generation and the one right before or right after us uh wanting to sort of rebuy things from their childhood um they're not going to think of moat as like the gold standard because it wasn't huge back then or bizarre baghdad is, a, is another great one it was not a huge card but it's huge now um but the black lotus is always big and it will always be big so the one the, one of the caveats to that is that some of them if you sort of granted the the nostalgia investing which you mentioned which i also think is a, is a big factor some of the things that you are a lot better known and were valuable back then when everything else was worthless are the things that will hold their value much better uh, and then the then the second caveat is just what whatever they decide to do with the reserve list if they ever decide to make a decision on that um that will obviously have a huge and potentially really bad or potentially really um yeah that will have a huge positive or negative effect on the market depending on what they decide to do with it So, I mean, have have you seen that kind of growth in the last year? Because my understanding was that Power Nine's been kind of flat over 2016. Don't have good data on that. I certainly recognize that it hasn't been as good as it has been in previous years. Uh, and then there was a point in there was a point in midsummer, I would say probably July to November, where it actually felt like they were falling by maybe five to fifteen percent, um, and that was a little bit worrisome until it became evident that sort of all of Magic did not do well in 2016, and that's something that, in, in talking with a lot of the different people in the industry, that's 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 sort of become an industry-wide thing. 20, 2016 was was not a great year for Magic for whatever reason that was. And certainly, uh, 
And when you say it wasn't great, do you mean that revenues were lower than in previous in 2015, 2014, or that they the growth stalled out and they were pretty much flatlined? The growth stalled out. Uh, certainly, a lot of stores went out of business. Uh, a lot more people were dumping collection. The value of cards seemed to go down a bit. Um, what is the other big factor for that sort of thing? Uh, attendance was down at events. Things like that were a lot of just sort of negative indications for Magic in general in 2016. Well, I mean, for much of the year, Standard was struggling because they had, at least in part, because they had announced that it was going to be an 18-month rotation instead of 24, and a lot of people felt like they couldn't keep pace. Um, I'm I, There's certainly, there's certainly a, a correlated thing there. I don't know if it's causal, the way you stated it like that. I don't know if... Um, if it's just that the sets were bad, um, so people were reacting to that, and then the rotation happened to happen at the same time, those few changes that they made, or sometimes it can be a larger thing, uh, the U.S. economy or the, or the world economy for the type of people who play the game, if they are suffering in other places, that magic's going to be one of the things that they cut back on, at least in some respect. Um, so I don't know if it's if the rotation... I, I am sure that the rotation is a factor. I don't know if it is um, the factor, though, but it's definitely definitely a big thing. Uh, yeah. So if you had to That's peg bad. the price of an unlimited Black Lotus <laughs> in near mint condition in five years, what what number do you you think will be associated with that card at that point? Um. So that's that's tough because. There's so few of them that you can't. It's it's tough to do a a year to year comparison on them because of what's what is or isn't available on the market. Um. So if you if you say that they're five thousand now, for example, a, a much easier way to do it, if I can if I can modify your question, is to look at what the biggest vendors are paying, at least ostensibly on their website for a near mint version. Sure. For example, Star City's at four thousand. On, on a lotus so you might find one on ebay in mint or at a show for like five thousand or fifty five hundred uh you said five years was the question what what do you think the price of the unlimited near mint black lotus will be in five years i would expect it to go up by 10 to 20 percent in that time I wouldn't expect it to be stagnant or to fall in that time. So so lower growth than we've seen in the past, but still slow and steady. Yes, that is that is a good executive summary. Yeah. So I mean one of the things that's got me concerned though, as you play as you tease that out, extrapolate it further down the the time graph, is that one of the things that comes into play is price theory. That there you get to a certain point where the number of people in your player base that can afford the uh, price tag is um, dramatically reduced as you crawl up through various price tiers. So the number of people that can afford a $20 card in the player base is pretty high. Um, the number of people that can afford a $600 deck for standard or a $2,000 deck for modern um, is significantly less than your overall casual player base. Once you start getting into, you know, $5,000 decks or $5,000 cards, you've got 
far, far less, something like less than 5% of your player base that will even consider it, and maybe 1% that will activate on it, um, or they will yeah, a slightly higher percentage that will piece it together over time. But once you get to a point where, say, the unlimited near mint back Lotus is $100,000, you know, who, who knows if that ever occurs, um, or how long it would take, you the number of people willing to, you know, forego a down payment on their home for a card um <laughs> is going to be extremely low um yes um sorry just to finish the thought the most perfect lotus in existence right the 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 perfect 10 rated lotus graded lotus has been on the market for several years now right without a buyer right yeah to my knowledge yes right so i mean you know, given that that's the case, we know that there is some upper limit um, where the utility, uh, the cost uh, outweighs the utility and, and a card will simply, you know, sit on a shelf forever without a buyer. Right. And uh, there's there's two there's two sections to look at in terms of of, of, of the really high end stuff. There's first the collectors and second, there's the players. Um, I, I don't think the collector aspect of it is as huge of a factor as the player factor is uh would you say that's true uh i think that for these cards collect it they are collectibles once you get i I don't think there are very very many people that buy you know near mint vintage state power nine to play with um, my impression, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, is that those are the kind of people you sell a lot of MP copies to. Right. I think that's a reasonable statement. Because these guys are trying to fit. These guys are trying to get a full. You know, somebody who's interested in vintage as a format wants to get a deck together. If they can spread ten thousand dollars over five cards instead of one card, they're going to take that option. Right. Um, if 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 you assume that most of the transactions, regardless of if they're near mint or played, are done by players, people who intend to play with them in some form or another, rather than collect them or invest in them. And I do think that, counting the non-mint copies, that that is true. Um, Then the market itself is nearly perfect and is definitely self-correcting, because the argument you're setting up is, as vintage cards go up in price, no one can play vintage. However, if that's true, then what's actually going to happen is people are going to play vintage, maybe excluding a few of the cards, which makes the overall metagame of people playing lower in that their decks are worse, which makes it easier to get into it. It's one of those things that is balancing just by the way the system is set up. So if you're worried that the prices of the cards are making it so that fewer people are going to be buying the expensive cards... If they're still playing the formats and they just can't afford the bigger cards, then there's going to be more people playing in those formats without the bigger cards. I mean, I think I would need, before I would buy into that, I would need to see data from tournament organizers on whether people are, are red, how many, what percentage of vintage players are willing to register a suboptimal deck. Right. That is not data that I would have access to, for sure. <laughs> um, but it, it's... It, that 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 argument reminds me of the uh, of the old. It's an old saying that says, uh, 
like, do, do you have a car in New York? And, and you say, no, no one drives in New York. There's too much traffic. It's one of those things where it, it's self-correcting and then each person makes their decision based on what they see going on around them. And if the, if the argument is that it's too expensive to play vintage using all of the bigger cards and people are still using some of the bigger cards, then every, everything's fine. It's, it's only really a problem if people just stop playing vintage entirely. So do you sell more MP copies of Power 9 than you do near Mint? Is it easier to sell a cheaper, a cheaper copy? It's certainly easier to sell a cheaper copy because it's it's priced lower, uh, but it's also easier to sell a, a cheaper copy because they're also easier to buy. The kind of person who has a Mint Lotus is much easier to buy. <coughs> Excuse me, it's much easier to buy a played Lotus from the person who has a played Lotus than it is to buy the Mint Lotus from the person who has the Mint Lotus. And if there's a guy with with both of them, it's much, much easier to buy the played one from the guy who happens to have two copies of it. So it's certainly much easier to, to do some sort of, for lack of a better word, volume on the played ones than it is on the mint ones. Right, that makes sense to me. So, I mean, you're going to handle a lot more um, yeah. lower Yeah, so it's lower, hard to get a real, real useful data because I can't go to the Lotus factory and order more. But if you look at turnover by percentage within the condition category, and who you know, tell me if you've ever done that, um, I'd be curious to know whether your near mint copies have greater velocity in terms of um, turning your money over. Uh, because there's, we are, we do, we we handle them a little bit differently. Like on TCG Player, for example, there's there's just the values. Or not the values, there's just the conditions listed of the cards. And for us, we don't ever declare what condition a card is. We just show a really great picture of it. And we say, here's this Lotus, here's our price. What do you want to do? Um, so I don't, have them, I don't have them all grouped into categories that we would be able to do any sort of useful uh, data analysis on to figure out if, if, if the played ones have the higher velocity. That is a very interesting question, and... And I guess TCG would have your answer for that one. <laughs> well, I mean, it's interesting. It's an interesting strategy. Um, you know, I'm looking at one of your lotuses on on eBay, and it's exactly as you said. There's there's no condition listed. Um, yeah. But if it's a, a graded card, um, you know, internally certainly you you still assign a grade, right? Like, it, even if you're not yeah, publicizing I mean, it's like a, grade. a BGS graded lotus, we definitely have a grade on it. Um, the thing with those is that while we do sell them and we sell a reasonable amount of them, um, it's just such a, it's, it, the sample size is too small for me to want to make any sort of uh, broad generalization about which ones are selling better or which ones have better velocity in terms of sales. But if some guy walked up to you um, and offered to buy you a beer and said, you know, if I, if I want to flip a Lotus and the guy's got two, he's got a near mint and he's got an MP, which one would you tell him to buy? Wait, wait, wait. I'm, he wants to sell it to me or he wants to... No, he's, he, he's got an opportunity to flip, flip it and he's trying to figure out how he can get, get his money back faster. Okay, so there's a guy and he can buy either a mint one or a played one and then he's planning to resell it right away. And he wants to know how, which one he's more likely to sell faster. Uh, he is more likely to sell the played one definitely faster. Um, I would, my recommendation to him 
would be to buy the played one, flip it, and then buy the mint one. <laughs> and then go back for the near, near mint one with his profit. Right, and, and, and then just sit on the near mint one. Nice. And be pretty happy with that. All right, cool. Um, but yeah, in, in terms of flippability, definitely the played ones. Got it. Um, okay, so through Netherworld, um, I assume you guys are... When you vend at major uh, major events, are you under Power Nines brand or under Netherworld? The Power Nines brand. brand. Netherworld's the retail outlet, the, the game store, the tournament scene for Madison. Got it. And Power Nine is the single supplier. Cool. So, as Power Nine, are you? You know, what what is the extent to which you are attending events in the U.S.? Are you guys trying at Star City? Are you guys at Grand Prix? Uh the. The biggest thing for us is tends to be geography. Uh, so we actually just did Star City Regionals a weekend or two ago up in Minnesota, and that was great. Um, but it, it, I think those sort of decisions are more determined by geography than they are by brand name. We try to do as many GPs as we can, and we prioritize the ones that tend to be closer to us. Uh, just in terms of transport for what we bring back, uh, how close it is is a pretty big factor in terms of getting the job done. So, I mean, very competitive to be on the you know major tournament or GP circuit as a vendor. Way more vendors on the floor than there used to be, um, and everybody's operating you know at a higher level of of data uh, and efficiency because a lot of the bad operators have been kind of weeded out of the system. Um, you know, how difficult is it to strategize? Um, you know, your buying and selling action on the floor? Um, I guess I'm not 100% sure what you're asking exactly. Well, do you think it's more about like having a niche, like being, uh, you know, fo- focusing on uh, a different uh, set of priorities than other vendors? Or is it about having the lowest cost of overhead so that you can offer the best buy list prices and edge people out that way? Like, how, how do you make sure that your goals are achieved and that the, I mean, the tables are very expensive, right? It's it's not cheap to be a vendor at these events. Yeah, it tends to be anywhere from the four to $10,000 range per table. Right. And so how, how do you make sure that the game plan for the weekend is going to justify that, that commitment? So a lot of, while there tend to be, you know, 15 to 20, maybe sometimes as low as 12 and as high as 24 vendors at a GP, uh, I, I think there are different ways that people distinguish themselves, which are, which are good for each of them. Uh, there are some people who are at those things just to get their name out there and to sell a bunch and to do a lot of business that way. We happen to go to them mostly for the purchasing aspect of it. Um, buying cards from people, using that uh, to help fix up our supply chain, get the cards we need for the different platforms that we sell on. Uh, and there are a lot of people who do who do that similarly. Uh, so within that subset of vendors who are there mostly to buy, I guess you, you really distinguish yourself by, by having good prices, by being willing to buy just about anything, and uh, really by building up rapport with people over the long term. Uh, every event we go to, there are dozens of people who come to us because they've come to us in the past, either on a lark or just because we were the first one there or we were right next to them when they finished their round and they, they came over. Um, but 
you know, you deal with the same people over and over again, and they really appreciate you being there, and we appreciate them coming to us, and, and they really enjoy the whole experience of it. So it, definitely part of it is, is battling on prices. Um, but it's also being able to battle on width, being able to not have to say no to someone when they say, hey, can I sell this to you here? Uh, there's a lot of vendors who they just won't buy some things. And, and it's totally understandable. There are some things in our industry that are really difficult to turn over. Um, most vendors will tell you that they don't want to buy signed cards, for example, because it's, you, you just sit on inventory like that for a long time instead of making your money over and over again just on your turnover rate for the same card if it weren't signed. Uh, so they'll say no to someone when they, when they bring that up there. And if you, if you can change it so that you're, you're saying yes a lot more to people, uh, we found that you do a lot more business that way. Right. So the idea is that you, you might have to hold part of what you bought from that person for longer, but you're at the top of their list the next time they want to come dump a bunch of stuff onto your buy list. So, so one piece of the puzzle is a little more expensive for you, um, but it gives you greater access overall. And you've got a whole network you've got to feed with cards, so you can't really be dithering around on onesie twosies. You really want to absorb a lot of cards at those events. Right. Yeah, just find a way to say yes and to satisfy the customer in a way that's fair for both of you. So can you speak a little bit to you know the kind of decisions that go into what is prioritized on a buy list? Because often the buy list is quite broad, but you have a board out inside, uh, you know, at the side of your table um, that highlights you know twenty or thirty cards that are are important targets for the weekend. How are those targets selected? Um, people do it differently from each other. The two ways that I can think of that people run their uh, their buy board, for lack of a better word, the stuff that they use to, being, to to advertise to people are they either, maybe there's a couple different ways. Uh, one way is they put something on the board that they think a lot of people are going to have at the event. Uh, so it makes sense to focus on it uh, and, and do a bunch of buys and sells with it. Another thing, another strategy for putting stuff on the board is stuff that maybe you're sold out of or that you're even worse oversold on and you just need to get copies back in to repair your inventory and get it back to the point where you can offer a selection to the market uh, and another way is just to put things on your board that draw people over to your booth instead of going somewhere else um, but aside from those broad things it's, it's really going to change like if you ask me what i put on my board today it's going to be different than what i'm going to put on it in at the end of March, for example. Uh, but I would look at it in terms of strategy, like what are you trying to do with your board? Why do you have it there? What's gonna make it the best for you? So you I talked about having- answer for you. I'm sorry. <laughs> you talked about having software that um, is distributed amongst your retail partners um, and that pricing logic was a big component of that software. Um, who on your team uh, is handling, you know, the kind of moment-to-moment, day-to-day um, reworkings of, of card pricing, buy list prices, and retail prices um, that gets distributed in that manner? You're wondering how much time we put into that? Yeah, like whether you have, is it a dedicated full-time job? Is it something that you spend a lot of time on? Or is, it, is there somebody like that whose speciality on the team is to focus on that? Uh, we have... 
it's something that a couple people here do, yes. Um, we have a lot of software in place that is watching things, watching eBay especially, watching how the markets change, uh, what's going on with, with sales and everything. And that usually gives us pretty good precursors on uh, imminent price changes and things like that. Uh, it, it is something that requires human intervention. And it is something that, that I enjoy doing, but it is something that, that other people do here as well, yes. Right, so you've got a data dashboard and then you know you have analysts that are or buyers that are looking at that and making decisions based on the data that's getting pulled out. Yeah. Cool. Um, all right, so at the height of popularity for modern and legacy, especially a few years back, foreign language foils, uh, specifically Russian, Korean, and Japanese foils, sometimes German, were commanding significant premiums as players were blinging out their decks. Lately, it seems like some of the luster on foreign foils has worn off. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, that was never a thing that we put a lot of effort into or a lot of time chasing it um if people if people wanted to sell us stuff we were happy to buy them and if people wanted to buy them from us we were happy to sell them i think the big issue with that market is that it was always so difficult for people to determine what was a, a good and fair and reasonable rate on them and it's it's still true uh tcg has the non-english stuff listed as well however there's just not a lot of data points there and mkm uh which is a european site that i'm sure most of your viewers are most of your listeners are familiar with um that has a ton of things on it but it has no access to the u.s market and anytime someone from the united states looks at something on there they always say to themselves wow this seems much cheaper than i expected it to be uh, we, we absolutely have noticed a significant drop-off in foreign foils and things like that. Um, yeah, because I mean... It, it I, I don't know. I don't know if there's a specific catalyst to it or if it's just market attrition, people getting people getting sort of tired of trying to find out fair prices with them and stuff like that. Uh, I, I confess I do not have as much familiarity with with that sort of thing as a lot of other people in the industry do, but I can absolutely confirm a, a significant drop off in that sort of business. Yeah. I mean, the theory I've been floating is that um, there, there's an ongoing um, reluctance on wizards part to demonstrate a firm commitment, certainly to legacy and vintage. And now we're starting to see indicators that modern might um, be falling off their radar as well. And certainly if you don't feel like a format is going to be front and center, you know, the, the, you know, one factor or, or one flashpoint certainly has to be when they decided that all the pro tours were going to be standard. You know, the modern pro tour went the way yep. of the dinosaur. Um, and those kind of signals uh, are, are interpreted by the market as it may not be safe to buy a $1,200 Russian foil Jace the Mind Sculptor. Um, who knows where I'm going to be playing this in a few years. Uh, yeah, and, and abso absolutely, that is another huge factor. If, if, if the cards can't be, but this is, it, it's a collectible, but it has a function and you can't treat it the same as you treat a normal collectible market and you can't treat it the same as you treat a normal functional market. Um, if, if stuff is being used less, then the demand goes down. And that's, that's a very good point about modern and, and the sort of 
formats where people really try to pimp their decks out. Uh, if there's less demand, those prices are going to go down. Yeah. I mean, the other factor, I think, has been there's been an increase in judge foils. Now we have um, expeditions being followed up by inventions, and now we're being told that we're going to get premium foils, 30 or 40 new premium foils in every set um, for the foreseeable future. I mean, that certainly is going to impact the, the market for premium foils that used to be significantly more special, rare, or unique. Yeah, definitely. I, I also think it's a great way for them to to sort of sneak reprints in there without without reprinting them in in a standard format. Uh, and I think I think the masterpieces, the inventions, it, it's it's they have it now so that inventions and expeditions are subsets of masterpieces. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I believe that's true. Is that the <clears throat> so everything's going to be a masterpiece from now on, and it just might be a a land or an artifact or They'll probably do blue next if they just pick. It. They keep doing it by color identity, um, and those things are a great way to get reprints of cards out there. However, uh, they Wizards themselves has noticed a huge drop down in Kaladesh in terms of chasing these inventions. When they when they came out with them, they were really expecting them to be the kind of thing that was incredibly sought after, and whose prices maybe dipped it at first and then started going up again. And it, it hasn't really yielded the result that they expected. Uh, the prices were, were, were amazing coming out, and then they just, they just, they seem to have just kept going down over time. And that's, that seems to be true of the expeditions and the masterpieces. Uh, which, which was an interesting and, and not something, not, not a result I would have expected either. Uh, I mean, it, I, I find it, I've been tracking this pretty carefully and find it completely fascinating because the reality is that some of the cards, um, the inventory is getting very, very low, um, even on the Kaladesh inventions. Um, if you take a look at the TCG inventory for Soul Ring, Chromatic Lantern, or some of these EDH staples, um, it, it really feels like to me that it's EDH that's driving the majority of the premium foil demand at this point. Yeah, that's that's... From from what I've done in person to person sales, it does feel like the masterpieces are bought more for EDH players and EDH decks than anything else. Um, it is frustrating that EDH is one of those formats that they're not really supporting in a, in as much of an official context as they could be doing. Yeah, I would agree, and I mean, it, it, I don't think I think it's interesting. One of the other factors is probably that um, you can buy a single masterpiece soul ring for say one fifty or whatever retail. Um, and feel good about a card that you can kind of swap between your various EDH decks. Um, but you can't just, there's no point in just buying one Expedition Scalding Tarn that's been stalled out on price since pretty much since it came out. Um, if you're going to buy one, you're going to buy the whole set. I mean, nobody's going to play with Mismatched. So that's right. a $1,000 commitment, and that's completely different than $150. So the, the price theory thing kind of, price theory rears its head in, in that circumstance as well. Yes, that is also a, definitely a relevant factor in this sort of thing. Have you guys noticed an uptick at all in EDH driving prices in general over the last couple of years? Um, it's one of those things that it's one of those things that caught a lot of people by surprise. Uh, I feel like that surprise hit a lot longer than the time frame you just gave of four, of, of four to five, four or five years ago. I think that surprise hit maybe eight to 10 years ago. And then after that, people have been sort of just 
adjusting to it and and recognizing that there's going to be some weird cards that are worth a bunch because their demand for a format they never see exists and the foils especially uh edh has certainly been a, a great thing for magic and it's definitely helped keep stores alive and helped keep vendors in business and it's it's something that people they, they seem to walk away from a game of commander a lot happier than they walk away from any given game of standard or, or modern. So I, I think it's great from that standpoint. I, I think it's great for the game overall. And it's frustrating, again, that it's, it's not supported. Uh, but... And, and, and by not supported, you mean that there's a, there's a product that comes out every fall, but beyond that, it's barely brought up. Yeah, it's it, they really need to they they need to fix all of the mistakes that the rules committee has made. They need to fix up the format itself, um, and they need to su- support it in some way in terms of at the store level or. Uh, I hesitate to say it, but like a commander grand prix would be both the best and the worst thing ever <laughs> I, I i had the i made the same suggestion on on twitter earlier this week in a discussion with multiple people and helen uh and uh was told that uh competitive edh is too easy to co-opt um but i still think that there is even if it was um structured differently to accommodate the nature of the format some kind of e- commander celebration every year um is almost certainly called for yeah and could be a major bending event. That would be great. I, I mean, saying that Commander isn't something that they do for a Grand Prix because it's too easy to co-opt. It, it's it's too easy to um, uh, to negotiate with people at the table for a result, right? Like that. That um, is that what you meant by it? Same table multiplayer as we saw with Conspiracy, which was an d- absolute disaster. Oh, 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 oh! No, I would run. A, I would run a Grand Prix in, in, using the one v one format. I wouldn't have group games for the Grand Prix. Ah, uh, okay. I mean, that could work if if there was enough people with decks built. I mean, I guess the the concern there is that almost everybody's got built is built for multiplayer, right? Right, and that's because of the way that they, the people with control over the format, are are, are sort of dictating that you play it. It's it's one of those things where they have they have all of the tools and all of the pieces they need to build something. They just don't know how to put it together. Uh, Wizards and the rules committee controls what happens with Commander, and they they could make it a an amazing and very interesting one v one format. Um, but they're not. And then if they're worried that group games would make running a GP impossible. I mean, you just point back to the fact that they're the ones saying that you have to play a group game. They could make it one v one if they wanted to. Uh, I mean, there's there's one there's the French rules out there and the French ban list. Uh, they could really fix things up to make it a really great format that would work for one v one. I would I, I do not envy the judges that have to judge the events where instead of a pool of three hundred cards, they're suddenly dealing with literally millions of possible interactions of cards. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess if it's a celebration, you just run both, right? You have a competitive uh, 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 thing for the one v one, and you have and you have some kind of other tournament for the multiplayer guys, and it's you know based on some you know you can have some kind of prize structure where it's more like you know people assigning people stickers or points or something that you can turn in at a prize table for you know most uh, fun moment in the game, uh, best group hug 
play you you can do it you can handle it completely differently and still make an excellent event yeah right that's that's very true um i would i would if i were in charge if i were running things i would certainly first thing i would do is i would i would fix the i'd fix their banned and restricted list or not restricted list just their ban list so it's commander i would fix fix their ban list and i would uh run the run a gp as 1v1 commander and then I would just have tons and tons of, of group and 1v1 side events. I think that would be the, the optimal way to run something like that. And it's something that would bring out people who would never consider going to any other format of Grand Prix. People who, a lot more casual players, it would give them their first taste of what large competitive magic events can be. And how enjoyable they are and what just a, a wonderful celebration of the community it is. And it would really expose people to the game and to the level of play that they would just never be exposed to in any other context. Yeah, fair enough. All right, so let me let me loop you back around to your uh, Power 9 inventory. How many Lotuses do you think you've had your hands on over the years? That is an interesting question that I have somehow never contemplated myself. <laughs> but do you think it's dozens, <laughs> hundreds, thousands? Um, I'm trying to think of an intelligent way to ballpark that for you. I I know how many I own. So what's what's um, that number? And that number is. It, it's not a number that I ever really disclose to anyone. Um, <laughs> Can you give us a ballpark? I'm. Yes. Have you have you been to the high end group on Facebook? Yes. Are you talking about the picture that's at the top? Okay. Yeah, so those are all mine. That was just taken um, at the floor of the <laughs> at the floor of uh, the vault where we store all of those. And that was really that was really done as a joke. I didn't really expect that to turn into a thing. Um, but there's there's I think there's about fifty or eighty in there. I can't remember how many. Yeah, it, it, this is the picture where you spelled out "not high end" with a giant question mark, and the "not high end" was all unlimited lotuses, and the the question marks made out of what a combination of beta and alpha. Yes, that's that's exactly what it is, and uh, I can't remember how many are there. Uh, but that was that was just a, those those were I wasn't borrowing them from people. Uh, yeah, but by, by my I count, that's at least get, a few dozen. Get asked. Yeah, um, and that was that was taken many years ago, um, and that wasn't that wasn't even all of them that we had that that we that I own at the time. Um, I I in, in terms of so let's say you have a couple hundred or so ish on hand, and over time, then you've probably handled hundreds, right? Um, in terms of owning, if you want if you want a ballpark, it's probably. I, I crossed the hundred mark a long, long time ago before they were even worth very much. Um, so it, it's well above. It's well above the three-digit mark uh, in terms of actually handling. Uh, in terms of having owned and then sold, or owned and then still owned, um, and most excitingly, owned and then getting to reown year and years and years later. Years and year late. Wow, years and years later. Those are the most exciting ones when you. When, when you send one off into the world and it somehow comes back to you. <laughs> um, in terms of, of total, it's definitely four figures. It might be approaching five. Wow. 
That's an impressive number and a lot of turnover. Uh, so, I mean, that's also, I mean, a ton of money um, caught up in inventory that represents a tremendous faith in the game. Um, has anything lately given you pause as to whether you might want to be more aggressive in turning those into cash? That is a question I struggle with. Um, I have always had tremendous faith in the game and I, I can't think of a better way to express that faith than by doing what I've done and investing in the cards themselves. Um, obviously you, you couldn't buy wizard stock and you can, you can buy Hasbro stock, but that's not really quite the same thing. You're not really making the same statement as you are. And I, I really have had faith in this game since I, I first became enchanted with it all those years ago. Has anything given me pause? Um, so one of the things I and a few other people in the industry and a few people who aren't even in the industry do every now and then is we, we get together and we, we try to figure out how to, how to kill magic, how to make it go away forever. Um, and by doing that, we're essentially trying to do two things. We're trying to, first of all, make sure it doesn't happen. And second of all, try to figure out what the warning signs will be in case it is happening. So, I mean, that's fascinating. You're uh, talking and, about and getting together with other uh, industry luminaries and trying to figure out what the anti-roadmap looks like. Yes, that's exactly right. And it, it's, something, it's something that I came up with when I was first starting off uh, <laughs> almost as it was, it was very difficult explaining to my parents that I would, I would be doing this instead of becoming a consultant or an IT professional. <laughs> and, and this was one of the things that I, that I came up with as a way to sort of uh, allay their fears. And it, it sort of turned into a, a semi-frequent thing that we do where we, we figure out and we actively try to, try to, try to not actually try to kill the game, but try to come up with what could kill the game and what those warning signs would be. And one of, the, one of the hugest things that we've talked about for the last two decades is what happens if, uh, if really good fakes start entering the scene. And the reasoning is, is pretty well understood at this point, but it's basically that if the cards themselves can be faked by someone who can sell them much, much cheaper than the singles are sold or the packs are sold by the only company who's allowed to make them, that will kill the game because the company that runs the tournaments will go out of business. That, that's essentially the fakes argument. Uh, and it's, it's one of those things that... <sighs> so when, when that sort of started to become a thing, I think, was it in 2014 that we had the, the forgery scare? Or was that 2015? It, it was 2013, it 2014, was 2014, where I started tracking um, Chinese uh, e-commerce yep. platforms that had multiple vendors offering up relatively good, yeah, like a list of two or 300 modern and legacy staples, basically, that yeah. looked pretty close if you weren't a well-trained eye. It didn't quite yeah, feel and, and right. that's one of those things... Yeah, if that if that really starts to become a problem, um, that is one of those things that can really hurt the game. And when that happened, uh, Wizards did a. I, I think a, I, I am not one to to lump 
praise on them frequently, but one of the things that they did really, really well was, was handle that situation in a way that even if it didn't actually solve the problem, it instilled confidence in the marketplace. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's like the war on terror, the war on drugs, the war on counterfeits from Watsi's point of view is not a war that they can ever win. They can't ever stop people from counterfeiting because even if you stop someone who is counterfeiting, someone else can start doing it. And you never find out about these people until they're big enough for you to find out about them. And by then, uh, the incremental damage that they've done has already been done, and then you stop them. But what they did was they made it obvious that they were going to aggressively go after them. And that was, that was absolutely the correct play, and that was what Magic needed to avoid what could have been uh, a, a catastrophe. There, there's always going to be fakes out there. There's, there's nothing you can do about that. There's nothing anyone can do about that. It's just a question of learning how to identify them and making it apparent that wizards, in conjunction with whatever law enforcement agency they ended up having to work with, because it was an international thing, is going to clamp down on them as fast as they possibly can. Um, so in terms of do I have confidence about magic for the future? Yes, I, I, I absolutely do. Uh, I'm, I'm personally invested in it. I'm not having a fire sale anytime soon. I'm not divesting myself of all of the big cards or, or, or any of the cards. I, I do believe there is a lot of things that wizards can do much better to help the game out. Uh, the biggest of which is uh, to do something about Modo. Wizards, wizards' number one bridge to the future I believe is magic online. It's a way to insulate yourself from a lot of potential problems, including the counterfeiting problem, but not limited to uh, people drifting away from traditional in-person things and, and just spending a lot more time online to things like running into issues with gambling, uh, which, which has not been a problem at all. Um, but that's one of those things that can pop up that uh, they can, that they can deal with by, by having magic online and by sort of neglecting magic online the way they have, they're putting themselves at risk. Uh, but it's, it's, it's almost been good in a way because they've sort of shown that no matter how bad their product is, they are still going to have a market for it, which is in turn uh, builds a lot of faith for me because it, it really means that magic is here and to stay and it will be around for a long time, no matter <laughs> almost no matter how it's mismanaged by the people in charge. <laughs> so, I mean, with regards to Magic Online, I have two concerns. Um, because they've announced now that at some point, either later this year or maybe the year after, we're going to get a, a peek at some specific plans for something called Magic Digital Next. Um, they announced in investor documents that they're, they've uh, put some significant capital um, into their digital projects over the last couple of years, and that they are... In theory, this means that the Magic Online platform will get a major upgrade or a replacement platform sometime in the near future. Um, there's two things that could happen there that give me pause, um, that led me to divest from most of my Magic Online assets in the last week or two. Um, the first is that they could just totally screw it up um, and never get there. I mean, one of the things that people forget is that yeah, you can sort of make a comparison between Hearthstone and Magic Online in the sense that Hearthstone clearly draws from Magic's mechanics. 
um, in terms of gameplay um, and solves a lot of the problems with uh, the complexity of the game by keeping some of the key mechanics while simplifying the, the overall package. Um, but people forget all the time that Hasbro is an old school retailing company and distribution company um, that has leaned heavily on toy licenses they acquired in the early 1980s. And that Activision that owns Hearthstone is like the biggest video game company on the planet. And that to, to conceptualize that you could compete against Hearthstone with any version of Magic, given the DNA of the company behind Magic as a brand, um, to me represents a misunderstanding of, of what industries these companies are actually in and where their expertise lies. From my perspective, for Magic Online to really be successful, they need a third-party partner. They need a, a mid-tier um, d game development company to come in and partner with them to make it of sufficient quality that it can best represent the brand in the marketplace. Do you think that's... Do you, would you agree that most of that sounds about right? I, I definitely agree with a lot of it. Uh, I believe they need to be doing a lot better things with with Magic Online. I don't know if they want to simplify it to where it's something closer to Hearthstone or if they just want to make it better. Those are certainly two different routes, and those routes are not mutually exclusive. There can certainly be two online products out there. And I, and I, get, the, I get the fear that their release of a new product has in terms of what they're going to do with the old product uh, because uh, you just don't know if they're going to stop supporting it and that's certainly a risk or if um, uh, but a, a Hearthstone is a, is a great point and my feeling on Hearthstone has always been that <laughs> To, to put it very bluntly, I feel like Hearthstone is making a lot of money that should be Wizards' money. It has been, it, it's been my feeling that if, if Magic Online were as good as it could be, uh, Hearthstone might not exist, but certainly wouldn't be as large as it is now. And so anytime, so when I see Hearthstone doing as well as it is, I'm, I'm glad for them, and, it, and it's certainly a great game. I've just always felt like that was that was Wizards market and that should have been Wizards money and an investment that would have seemed expensive at the time that they made it uh, would have paid off really well in the last recent years and sort of the phone apps and the success of uh, the small games that are on there could have been magic mini games for example or even just a, a really good version of of magic online and that's how that, that's how i feel about that particular part you mentioned in terms of hasbro being sort of an old school company with what they can actually do with magic online and that they don't really fully understand it and i think that's a very good point and i i, I certainly agree with that uh, my thought with it was that their digital products there's sort of there's sort of different islands here there's, there's magic, which is its own unique and weird little thing that exists and is definitely a powerhouse in the industry, but is, is still very, very small. And then there's things like video games and 
sort of fantasy leagues, and then there's board games. And those, those four things are, are independent from each other, and they, they each have their own, their own things about them that make them great. And magic is definitely the smallest of those things. And wizards, especially since they're owned by Hasbro, it seems like they're, they're trying to build bridges between, between Magic Island and, say, Fantasy Football Island or Board Game Island and Video Game Island. But what seems to be happening to them is that the bridges that they build seem to be almost one-way bridges in that they, they try to do this thing to get some sort of overlap between these two slightly disparate communities and they end up not really recruiting people from the old community to their community and they instead just not lose magic players but they give magic players a new thing to do and uh, their overall strategy seems worrisome in that they're trying to do too many different things instead of trying to just do their best thing, which is Magic the Gathering, this amazing intellectual property that they have sole possession of. Instead of just doing that really well in real life and online, it seems like they're trying to do these other things that are great things to do five or ten years from now once your once your internal house is fully in order and Magic Online's working well and, and Magic Papers is doing great again. And that, that's sort of how I feel about uh, that whole marketplace. So I've got a couple of thoughts to add to that. Um, one of them is that uh, one of them is that the you know they had uh, referenced in previous investor documents a couple of years back that Duels of the Planeswalkers was one of the major catalysts um, via its play on Xbox and iPad um, in the 2009 to 2012. Uh, period that is credited as uh, being the greatest growth in the last decade for the game, um, where they started trumpeting that they had 20 million players worldwide and so forth, um, leading up to you know a chilling effect over the last couple of years. Um, and so, and Duels of the Planeswalkers is you know if if you've never played it, light years ahead of Magic Online, right? Um, and it was developed by a third party. Um, what I suspect will happen with Magic Digital Next is that it will have uh, some uh, a game that is simpler, somewhere something along the lines of Hearthstone, that kind of eases you into Magic, um, highlighting the um, intellectual property in terms of characters, planeswalkers, uh, you know, the the worlds um, that they explore and celebrate, and that they will try to then transition people to the main game. Um, one of the problems there is that I think that the market that enjoys something as simple as Hearthstone, and it's still a relatively complex game, um, may not uh, be willing to commit to Magic, which I think is an extremely complex game. Um, a game with multiple different formats, with almost 100,000 cards printed over the course of 20 years, a rich you know, history... Um, its own set of you know pro players that nobody outside that scene really knows anything about. Um, you know, there's a lot going on with this game, and I think that for people to think assume that all the money from uh, Hearthstone could have been Magic's money, I think is 
is way off base, but I certainly agree that a portion of it could have been Magic's money because they had easily a decade in which to upgrade the platform to the point where it would have um, created a more robust online player base. Um, and by not, you know, they, they promised leagues, for instance, 10 years ago, only got around to it this year, and then in what's the result? Leagues are an excellent moneymaker <laughs> that in many ways fixes the problem with having to carve out three or four hours for a draft. And I, you know, I don't have access to that, the bottom line on those numbers, but I'm going to guess that they managed to increase draft participation by as much as 50 or 100% um, with a tweak that should have been done in, you know, 2005. So yes, I, I agree with, with, with every single thing you've said. Um, <laughs> Especially the not all of Hearthstone's money should be wizards. Um, I, I think a large a portion of it, maybe even as much as half of it, should be wizards. Um, in that the remaining half should still be Hearthstones, and the half that would be wizards should be that half plus a whole bunch more. Yeah. See, I think I think I don't think I could even get to fifty percent because um, I think people are underestimating the value of the brand equity that was built up in the Warcraft, Diablo, um, World of Warcraft player bases, which are you know numbered in the hundreds of millions. Um, some of the most uh, involved, committed, long-term gaming communities on the planet. And the IP uh, behind Hearthstone is what drew those people into the game. Wizards doesn't isn't right. in that situation because nobody outside the game of Magic the Gathering ev even could name our most prominent planeswalkers. Um, because they have uh, failed since the inception of the game to um, broadcast uh, Magic the Gathering to a wider audience. I mean, one of the things that has blown my mind is that we've never had a Magic cartoon. I mean, the, the structure of Planeswalkers in an Avengers-type format, hopping plane to plane, is exactly the kind of thing you, you put on the Cartoon Network. <laughs> and, and the fact that they couldn't pull that together through their hub project, where they, you know, they were putting money into games like they made the Battleship movie with money that could have gone into advancing the IP of Magic the Gathering so that later when they want to do things like pull 20 million fresh bodies into Magic Online, they would have a platform by which to make that connection. Um, the cartoon is an interesting thing that I hadn't thought of previously. The movies are certainly... I can't believe they made Battleship either. I did. It's weird, I did right? not see that. I, yeah, because <laughs> people didn't weird. under pe people didn't realize that when they announced that they assumed that was going to mean um, involvement in Star Wars, GI Joe, and and Transformers, which are the three toy brands that have traditionally made them a lot of money. Um, but Disney, right. of course, bought Star Wars, and the licenses for GI Joe and Transformers had already been pimped out. So there, you know, that resulted in movies like Monopoly and Battleship being. Um, screen tested, <laughs> right? Or and or conceptualized. My my impression was that they had sold, or they had they had announced something in effect with eleven of their brands, something some, something around that number, yeah. for movies, and one of them was Battleship, and one of them was Magic: The Gathering. Uh, that's 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 a four or five year old yeah and, and that, thing that I'm, and I'm remembering exactly and to our knowledge the that you know that movie's not even in production in any kind of meaningful way right and my thought on it was that if they bought eleven intellectual properties to turn into movies 
and Magic was one of them. And Battleship was one of the first ones. Then I am very, very, very happy. And I hope that Magic is the last one that they do. Because I really want them to learn as much as possible from having done these other ones before they make a movie out of that. But it also tells you a lot about their faith in the... um ability of the magic brand to cross over that they chose a game that was most popular in the 70s a board game that hardly anybody ever plays anymore over the game that has current 20 million current players as the, the flagship movie adventure i don't have the data on how much battleship is currently played however if you asked a bunch of people on the street if they knew what Battleship the game was or if they knew what Magic the Gathering was, I might put good money on more people recognizing Battleship. Oh, I would agree. I would agree. Um, which means that in terms of turning it into a movie, it does have the superior name recognition. Right. Agreed. Exactly. And, and that's the thing is that I think pe people inside the game of Magic don't realize how isolated they actually are. When you start, oh yeah, yeah, I'll definitely agree with that. The the Venn diagram. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. You know the Venn diagrams that you would draw, um, showing the different purchasing patterns of people that buy Magic product, would intersect with many different sectors um, of collectibles, gaming, sports, etc. Um, but the Venn diagram of um, brand recognition outside of the, the active player community would be extremely low. Um, and, yeah, you know, I, things... Your, your great aunt has, you know, probably has no idea what you're talking about. Your mother might have heard the name. Um, and, and that's a real problem when you're trying to turn something into a Hearthstone. I mean, Hearthstone got to say to a massive mailing list of pre-existing digital players, we've got a new game for you. We want to try out. It's a whole new thing. It's a completely different experience. Take a look. And even if they had never heard of Magic, they made it simple enough that they could latch onto the core mechanics that we've all enjoyed for years um, without any introduction. Um, and, and that's just not something that I think Magic Digital Next is in a position to leverage. Now, the other thing that I'm scared of, you know, this is my other fear, is it's actually possible, and I don't actually have faith that they'll do this, but it is possible to create a digital experience that is so compelling that it actually undermines paper. If, if the game is good enough and it's hands down the best way to play the game and experience the brand, then, and that goes on for long enough, then you can actually see a drop off in tournaments. And I'm not just talking about a, a slightly better Magic Online. I'm talking about when we get into quantum computing, when we get into virtual reality, when we get into situations where paper magic is no longer even half as compelling as the digital gaming option um i can foresee i don't know if it's five years 10 years or 20 years down the road there's there's a, t a point in time where computers are powerful enough that you can recreate all the best aspects of playing in person the camaraderie the socialization um and we're dealing with you know i've got a child who's two months old we're, we're dealing with a new generation who's going to grow up where you know facebook is the domain of old people they're going to be dealing with, yep. you know, social media uh, of a kind that we haven't even really conceptualized yet. Um, and so, you know, I, I have a lot of faith in the brand for, say, the five-year horizon, probably the 10-year horizon. 
Um, there's a certain, you know, if they get really smart about the, the way that they market Magic Digital Next, like you take the entire database of email addresses associated with players that are um, uh, trying that game out and you send them a deck in the mail or at the very least send them a promo card, a paper card, so that you can, you know, and, and the address of their local LGS. Um, you know, there's a lot of smart marketing that they haven't done in the past that they could do to really close that circle um, and drive deeper interest in paper. But if you get fur far enough out, I start to worry about where we end up. I mean, in, the, in that 20-year scenario, do you still see board games as being a thing, for example? The question becomes whether you're playing with physical pieces or you're doing everything virtually, I guess. Yes. I mean, I yeah, think that doing, the, the, uh, concepts of, the concepts games, of the so games so. And, the, and the way that they are played um, have a future. The question is whether you're still playing Settlers of Catan or Magic the Gathering on a tabletop, a virtual tabletop, or, you know, they've transmitted everything into a, a living, breathing experience. Right. Yeah, and, and that's what I'm saying is that uh, it, it makes sense. I, I see that argument uh, for Magic in 20 years. Um, do you think the board game market is similar where they might still exist, but in purely digital form? Yeah, and I, I, I think that they do in, some fo in a form that I can't see clearly. I mean, one of the questions then becomes, um, do, would a physical artifact of a digital property, um, meaning you know a beta Black Lotus, be that much more valuable in a world where 10 times more people are familiar with the brand but almost never play in person anymore yeah that's a that's certainly a tough one uh, i'm trying to think of parallels um i mean some of those original clunky macintoshes are still collectible even though <laughs> They don't even work well as paperweights anymore. Um, so there's certainly some precedence for something like that, which, which still exists in a much more impressive form, currently has value for the, for the original versions of it. All right, so we got we to gotta wrap this up at some point. Let me, let me run you through a few uh, quick questions on, on the personal side. Uh, given the extent of your business and uh, inventory, do you bother to maintain a personal collection these days? Um, I've always, back when I was first getting started and I didn't even have the business or the store, I, I always collected ATOGs. Uh, it was one of the, I, I won the first type one tournament that I ever played in using a deck that had ATOGs in it as the kill card. So I always collected those. So I still have a binder of ATOGs in my basement. Um, I, I don't really collect specific cards aside from that, and I don't really have my own collection that that I wouldn't ever sell. There's nothing that's really off-limits for me. I have a really extensive misprint collection, and some of those have have some sort of emotional resonance with me, but there's none that I wouldn't consider selling. Uh, every time the new Commander decks come out each year, uh, my wife and I buy a set of all five of them, and we sleeve them up, and we add them to our collection. And 
uh, every now and then when we want to actually play magic, that's that's the that's what we usually play. We just roll dice and pick random ones out of the box, and that's really fun to do. So I suppose those those are ones that I would I would never sell. So that would be somewhat of a personal collection. That's pretty cool. Do do you have a crown jewel of your collection, like an especially nice lotus or something that you've got in your back pocket that you plan to keep forever? Um, I don't think. Are there any the, the if, if I can rephrase your question, your question is: Are there any cards that I would never consider selling? Yeah, that's that's a is better that way right? to put it. Sure, sure. I I don't think there are. There are certainly some that I would price at a value that it would make it very difficult to sell them. Um, but there's nothing I don't think I would ever really sell. Uh, my wife and I, in addition to the lotuses obviously and the other power nine we also collect libraries as i mentioned before um i I can see there being someday where i sell almost all of the libraries um but i would certainly keep at least one of them uh we also had as a as a gift my wife had mark pool commission a picture of the library of alexandria on canvas with the two of us standing in front of it and that's that's not specifically a magic card, but that's that's certainly something I would never sell. But yeah, Very cool. there's not there's not as much delineation between the personal and the in the business collection anymore. Yeah, fair enough. Um, so you're an admin on one of the more successful and popular Facebook groups for magic commerce, the uh, high end MTG group uh, that has over forty thousand members. Uh, Brandon yep. Chan, actually, of uh, ANC Games here in Toronto started that group, a guy I, whose face I see every every so often. Um, how did you he end did, up involved and there? And, are... uh, what's your role over there? Uh, I, I am glad you, you brought up Brandon because uh, that was one of the things that I usually have to clarify with people. He is actually the creator of it. Uh, how did I get involved with it? It's actually a, a bit fuzzy to me how I got involved with it. Um, the group... The group is just an amazing idea that it's one of those things you look at and you're like, well, of course that exists, but not something that anyone would have thought of. But Brandon thought of it, and we're all very grateful that he did. Uh, The group just grew so fast that Brandon and a few of the other guys who were adminning it, uh, including Ian, uh, they, they just realized that they weren't able to deal with as much volume. So they started looking around in the community for people that they that they could trust that they would they knew would handle the uh the great power with the appropriate level of responsibility uh and so i was picked up in that in that first round of admin searches along with a, a bunch of other great guys that i now talk to on an almost daily basis about things and uh how does uh, your but in terms of how <laughs> go ahead I was just going to say, how does your involvement in the group uh, contribute to your inventory and sales funnel? Do you guys uh, pick up a lot of inventory through the group or sell through the group very often? Oh, actually, no, not <laughs> not very often at all. Um, yeah, it's 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 a great venue for buying and selling and trading. It's it's not something. It's it's something that I. Before I was an admin, I did a I did a bunch on it. Uh, I I don't do as much anymore. Uh, a lot of the other admins are pretty active in terms of buying and selling within the group. Uh, I I tend to only put something up there that's that's truly remarkable, 
or that I don't think I can sell for more in any other thing, or if I'm just putting something up uh, to publicize the group itself, like through some of our giveaways and stuff like that. Uh, but no, in terms of buying and selling, I don't do too much more in there. I don't do too much uh, business in there, at least not as much as I used to. Uh, it's, not, it's not as much. I guess I don't really know why. <laughs> um, in terms of in terms of how I use my time, uh, if I want to sell stuff more, it's a, it's a lot less time dependent to use some sort of automatic online system, you know, selling through eBay, selling through the other venues, selling through our site. It's a, it's a lot less effort in terms of time commitment to post there rather than post on in the high end group. Uh, but the high-end group has the advantage of of really putting a lot of eyeballs on your stuff and also in terms of letting you micromanage things the exact way that you want to. And, of course, to avoid most fees that uh, the other platforms end up dinging you with in one form or another. So it, it's great if you, are, if you are just getting into it or if you're looking to expand your inventory or if you have a bunch of truly impressive stuff to unload. Uh, but for myself personally, I find myself not selling on there as often, uh, and it's mostly it's mostly really just a time thing. Uh, my time is much more useful elsewhere, spending it with my family or selling on other venues, for example. Fair enough. Well, I've been talking with Dan Bach of Power Nine Games here on MTG Fast Finance. Dan, I'd like to thank you for spending so much time with us today. We've uh, covered a lot of ground. <laughs> yes, we have. It's a, been a pleasure. Fantastic. So we'll catch you guys all next week on MTG Fast Finance. And you can, uh, what's your website address, Dan? Uh, it's power9.com, just P O W E R N I N E.com. Fantastic. And uh, we'll catch all of you next week on MTG Fast Finance. <laughs>